This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Hello, hello everyone. Hello, good, good everything. Uncle Neb, all of the ashes and the and the love that we can put out uh, in this morning. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. I love that. Yeah, good everything, everywhere, all the time. Because we are everywhere all the time. It's beautiful. Yeah. Um, I got my new routine uh, where I get up and I got to get certain thousand, couple thousand steps in before I do anything. And so I'm listening to uh, on on audio book. This this nonviolent ish will kill you. Um, Hi, Charlie Cobb, my man. Shout out to the great Charlie Cobb, my man, Charlie Cobb. Yes, with all those stories, them black people are just heroic, aren't they? <laughs> I mean, but it frames how even the civil rights movement has been mis mis um, uh, produced. Like how how you know the eye on the prize. You know, it's like all these ass whippings, but they never show the people and on the side with the guns. <laughs> they never show oh, you know. And it, and the nonviolence mentality is so brilliant because it doesn't mean we just gonna take this ass whooping. It means publicly we are demonstrating a, a level of humanity that you don't possess. But I wish you would. I wish a person would. Like I, mean, I kind of wish. Yeah. Yeah. So the under underneath nonviolence is I, I wish you would. Absolutely. Um I ain't gonna start none. But don't start none won't be none is yeah. actually the the model of the nonviolent movement. Don't start none won't be none. I am um, you know, I find that interesting. And of course, uh blood and blood in their eye, blood in my eye. Yeah, George. blood in my eye. Here we go. Yeah, yeah, no questions. Black yeah. August. Yeah. So yeah. um and we've talked about him in Nubia extensively, but extensively. I, I said to you, you know, at some point the methodology that um George Jackson developed needs to be redeveloped and re-examined. Uh for real, for real. So absolutely. So. Yeah, I mean, we're somewhere between reform and revolution. And I forget what I was reading recently that talks about that. I mean reform in the sense of let's address the material needs of our people in the short term it's great to be theoretical and it's great to talk about how the world needs to be reformed but this person over here is hungry that's why i completely depart with my dear friends and comrades and colleagues who have all the beautiful analytical frameworks in the world and then they say when the republicans and democrats are the same in the united states it's all the party it's a duopoly and i agree with all of that now we just pulled up at this stoplight and see the sister over there who's coming to the window to ask you for a dollar break linen down to her <laughs> so in terms of reform <laughs> you know what i'm saying uh, there's that step but then revolution is is a much longer process and of course george jackson and it's interesting, I was, you know, there, there, there's a shelf of books, and I'm not going to talk a lot about it, because like you said, we talked extensively in Nubia, and for those of you not yet in Nubia and in narrative, you're going to have to come and really join us in that conversation. This is uh, Eric Mann's little book, Comrade George. So a book came out shortly after he was assassinated, uh, an investigation into the life, political thought, and assassination of George Jackson. And Mann does an interesting job of pulling together not only the details of Jackson's death, but also how solidarity movements arose. And one of them, uh, the last document in the book is called Toward a Red Prison Movement, RPM. These were uh, white prisoners. And in fact, he says the red prison movement is people, 
inside and outside the walls, working together as a small part of a worldwide revolutionary movement to destroy the brutal stranglehold of the American empire, working to help to build a communist world. So, of course, these are dedicated communists in this case. He says, we are white people working among our people to build a movement against racism, trying to reverse the ugly history of our people toward people of color throughout the empire. What is 1972? Yeah, 72. And then Republic 74. People of color throughout the empire, trying to help other white people understand the beautiful example being set for us by oppressed people in Asia, Africa, and Latin America, and in the black, brown, and red colonies inside the United States, trying to show other white people that only through a deep appreciation of third world peoples, using the phrase third world here, of course, and a deep hatred of our racist traditions, how to be anti-racist. Well, here it is, 1972. Um, can we ever expect to find human happiness? Then he quotes Malcolm. This is the document the white prisons put together. Malcolm also George Jackson, right? Sharing in prison a document constructed by white prisoners after he was killed. No, no, uh, the guy writing about Jackson saying in the wake of Jackson's death, his influence. It's, it affected these white prisoners and white allies outside. Now, this is this is why we have to have the momentum of memory because no no shade or disrespect to the uh, the George in the wake of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor's deaths. And of course, we see now the feds got involved in that. We can say more about that later. But uh, in terms of Breonna Taylor's killers, um, or well, anyway, no pause. But we saw the, the you know the anti-racist books and the white fragility and how to be anti-racist. Say less. In fact, say all the way less. Why don't you go bring this back into print? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We've been there before and with a lot more force. So I'm just saying one well, of the things. Back the car. If, if they say less, then there's no money. So oh, and, and, <laughs> if they say less, then publishers can't check the box that said we did something. You know, if they say less, then, you know, yeah, you know we, we can't, you know, we can't beat on our chest and just like, we're, we're, we're allies, you know, Black Lives Matter, Black, Black lives, lives Matter. matter. Hey, hey, let a thousand flowers bloom. And, and, and look, those, those sales that we talked about during that summer of 2020 kept a lot of Black bookstores afloat. I know Sankofa was one of them. People just bought books. Many of the books they didn't even pick up. Now, so yeah, publish those books, but publish those books and then if we're going to read those books, and you know, I read them because that's just the life I live, but I wouldn't encourage everybody to run out and read those books without reading books like this first, right. because solidarity movements, and then if you want to read that, fine, let's put them in conversation with each other, and we can make that very observation, because again, this wasn't independently published. This book when it was published in 72 was $1.95, and as you can see, it was published by Harper and Rowe. Therefore, this ain't the first move at the hustle. In fact, blood in my eye after George Jackson was assassinated, this book here, this Random House. Wow. <laughs> this Random House. Oh, no, no question. Now, of course, we know that at Random House, of course, uh, the most prominent Black editor was Charles Harris, who was recruited away from Random House in the early 70s to come start Howard University Press, uh, the defunct, now defunct Howard University Press. But when he left, of course, we know that the person who moved up and in and who, among other projects, was able to get Random House to publish Angela Davis's autobiography, Huey P. Newton's uh, autobiography, Muhammad Ali's autobiography, co-written with uh, Richard Durham, was Toni Morrison. 
So, and in fact, there was a very, a very famous Congress. Well, it's not famous at all. In fact, uh, it was seen for the first time in 50, almost 50 years. A few summers ago, we put together uh, and shout out to Harold Burke, who is an ancestor now, who was the only person on the campus of Howard University who knew how to operate that old machine that could trans uh, translate the reel-to-reel video, which had been in storage for decades, into digital. And Harold is now an ancestor. Uh, I, I, I hope that, that, well, we'll talk more about this a little bit later. I was going to say something about the PMC, what uh, Catherine Liu, uh, perhaps Olufemi uh, Taiwo over Georgetown might refer to as the professional managerial class, as you're talking about. These people seem to do well while doing good. You know, they, they, a lot of, lot of, what they call it, diversity, equity, and inclusion money from beating up white people now pay me. Uh, but what, how's it going to help the people? Well, I'm one of the people. But anyway, uh, Harold Burke transcribed uh, or uh, got transferred the real to real to digital. So we were able to view for the first time since it was shot. This is around 1973 or 74. Tony Morrison actually uh, was on the campus of Howard University for something called the National Black Writers Conferences. These were put together by Stephen Henderson, Jeannie Miller at the Center for the Arts and Humanities at Howard. This is all these things came in the wake of the black student movement in the late 60s and 70s, which created this demand that HBCUs become black universities. We since have learned that, you know, and know that there is no such thing as a black university because black universities in many ways are black lace white universities, different in demographic, different even sometimes in terms of aspiration of the people there, but in terms of structure, virtually indistinguishable from the white schools. And so that's not a bad thing. It's actually a revelation as a result of, of that struggle. But during that moment of the late 60s, 67, 8, 9, and then into the early 70s, there was a space where the community basically flooded many HBCUs and it kind of freed up not only students who had demanded it and select faculty who had demanded it, but other faculty who joined them in this momentum. And one of the things that was established was a beachhead. Uh, the proposal was to create the Institute of the Black World in Atlanta, uh, really around the Atlanta University Center and then the Martin Luther King Center. And when that didn't happen, it kind of created an, as an independent formation. Vincent Harding, we've talked about all this before. Um, and there are still some people around who can tell this story because they were there. Janetta Cole, Joyce Ladner, uh, my dear friend, um, of course, who once directed, who directed the Schomburg at some point, Howard Dotson, among others, and many others, ancestor, Walter Rodney, Jerome Bennett, St. Clair Drake, so many others. But anyway, point is this. At Howard, which was one of those places, there was something called the Institute for the Arts and Humanities, which was established by Stephen Henderson, who had been recruited from the Institute of Black World in Atlanta by the great Andrew Billingsley. Andrew and Amy Billingsley still around. Andrew Billingsley in his mid-90s had come to Howard to recruit, to create this Black university, if it could be created. And that's the, he's the one who hired uh, Ron Walters and so many others, Joyce Ladner, so many others, Ralph Gones, all these people who kind of when that moment, that was that brief moment in time, and thank the ancestors, I was able to be an apprentice of many of those folk, not just mm -hmm. how it went around. But at any rate, uh, yeah, and, I, and as you were talking, I'm just actually uh, craftily waiting because Nubians are filing in because it's early in some parts, you know, yeah, yeah. Well, in the, 
on the left coast, on the west coast, or you know, wiping the cold from their eyes and coming in. And folk, uh, we're going to be talking in community with people in Nigeria this morning who uh, who are ahead of us. So you know, I'm just waiting for them to come in. As you, you know, wonderfully, um, Tony B was like, you know, publishers in the '70s were so radical, you know, and I was like, no, they were pressured by the people. Exactly. Come on now. Them. And just like now, except now we don't have the memory to know what we can get, you know, to know what to demand, you know, the demands then were rooted in the struggle that they had just come out of. And they knew that that whole thing would burn down like now, except now we still care about too many frivolous things for it to actually have an impact. So we get a lot of books that don't matter. And the book that you're reading right now absolutely matters. So if you could just um, go back, I apologize for don't apologize. No, this this is this is the this this is the perfect. We needed that because people mistake right. They mistake these acts of capitalism as acts of altruism. They're not. They didn't want to go down in flames. <laughs> no question. So go ahead. That was no. That was necessary. So the book that we're reading from with the letters from yeah, the Comrade to, George uh, from, with the manifesto, Comrade George by Eric Mann. He was the editor. Um on the life and assassination of, of George Jackson. And, I, and and let me put a ball in that Toni Morrison thing. I'm not going to go too deeply into it. I just wanted to mention, actually, she's saying what you're saying. Toni Morrison comes, of course, she went to Howard. She had taught at Howard, taught English uh, for years at Howard, uh, gone to Random House. She came to the National Black Writers Conference. Footnote, that conference hasn't been held at Howard for decades. Of course, Howard regains its equilibrium in black university hmm, okay and now i think there's an attempt to put together something that gestures back toward it but i'm gonna wait and see because again this is about independent black institution building not creating forums for folk who have hit out in white institutions to come cash a black card but that's a story for another day um but it echoed because it caught on one of the brothers who was actually in residence at howard during this period haki mabuti Baba Haki, still around, you know, uh, he, he and Sister Safisha, his wife, um, uh, Dr. Lee, Carol Lee, and Donnell Lee at the time, and then Haki Mabuti. Well, that momentum continued at Chicago State University, which at the Gwendolyn Brooks Center, which was run by Haki for many years, picked up the Black Writers Conference. And of course, now the direct heir and continuing in that struggle is our sister, Brenda Green at, of course, Mega Everest College. And of course, you, uh, uh, Professor Hunter, have participated and moderated and helped convene and conduct that Black Writers Conference. So that is the direct descendant of the Black Writers Conference I'm mentioning here in the 1970s at Howard under the direction of Stephen Henderson and Jeannie Miller, who ran the Institute for the Arts and Humanities. And and finally, Toni Morrison said what you said. Oh, please, please come on back, because she said, you know, I'm in these white spaces. We need our own institutions. Now, this is Toni Morrison, not as a novelist, even though Blue Eyes has come. This is Toni Morrison as an editor at Random House. In this room, in a tape that hadn't been seen in decades because it was in real to real until Howard digitized it for us. Um, Harold did, and we sitting there looking at this. And, and we, we, we very deliberately picked academics that summer. We did this who were from black colleges. Nate Norman from Morehouse, Dan Black from uh, Atlanta. Uh, Sam Livingston from Morehouse, Lizzie Watkins, Mario Beatty, Howard University, Cat Adams, who, of course, is a Nubian, probably here this morning, um, uh, from at the time, she wasn't at Claflin, she's at Claflin now, you know, and uh, David Green, Dana Williams from Howard, because these are Black 
We need black professors to see these black people talking to each other about black institutions. And so she's speaking as you are speaking. I know the book world. I'm in the book world. And I'm telling y'all, we don't do this. This is going to mess up. It's Toni Morrison. Now, mind you, Toni Morrison's papers are at Princeton. It's almost as if we sat there after we watched it and had a conversation on what happened. <laughs> so painful. Her entire collection is sitting in some white person's house right now. It was auctioned. Oh, this was the house. This was the house in New York. You talking about when they show up, we saw the pictures. Oh, it breaks my heart that the her collection of books was auctioned off and it's sitting right now in somebody's home. You know, and this is why I'm going to just say, you know, we did lesson, um, lesson number 76, lesson number 74, um, episode number 76 and 74, where we remember Black August. We did seven, uh, episode 74, which I'm going to drop in the chat. Uh, those of you who are new to Nubia, new to In Class with Carr, we spent a, an entire hour and 55 minutes on George Jackson and Black yeah. August. We went through uh, both of these books, So Dead, Brother, Blood in My Eye, and a lot more. That's right. And then we did C.L. Franklin, Nat Turner, and Black August, episode 76. That was an hour and 42 minutes. You know, but I'm also now listening to um, Toni Morrison's only short story. And it's, uh, have you read it? Recitative. I think yeah. that's how you say it, recitative. Yeah. yeah. And the brains, so I'm listening to this woman understanding that she really wanted us to be free. And her frustration is like, how am I going to do it? You know, okay, I'm publishing all of these books. Okay, let me write. Let me let me drop, you know, some allegory and maybe that'll unlock something. Let me give you a story of two young girls who grew up in an orphanage or in a, you know, in a home for 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 girls. And I'm not going to tell you which one is black and which one is white. And I'm going to mm -hmm. drop clues throughout the whole entire short story. And you still at the end won't know because we are human beings living a human experience. And yes. just like the letter you're reading from white prisoners. That's right. At some point, we're going through the same thing. And y'all going to let somebody take this melanin and drive a wedge between human beings and make it so difficult to live just difficult to live for what you know and she's so brilliant and i also feel her frustration as i'm listening to her works and how clever and brilliant she is just just trying to wake it wake us up just in different ways and and it's and it's necessary work as a as human being i mean her james baldwin i'm sure it's part of the reason she said tanasi cozy merge reminds her of baldwin and I'm saying that's incredibly important work. Not my work, but it's incredibly important work. Why? Because somebody needs to stand in there and have this conversation with people who don't look like us. That don't mean I don't talk to white people or anybody else. We, we have conversations with everybody. But this this perpetual, in fact, I was just reading somebody the other day. Maybe it was Julian Mayfield, the writer who ended up in Ghana with Alice Wyndham and and uh, Maya Angelou and David Levin Lewis and Nell Ever Painter. Some, you know, who was saying about Baldwin, Baldwin is one of the few who will talk to y'all. He said, the revolutionaries have stopped talking to y'all. We trying to survive and build what comes next. Baldwin wants all that too, but he is at least willing to take y'all on. And it, But when it becomes the core of your identity, that's a price that people pay. So I want to respect that because that's difficult work. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I, I, I'm, oh, you, you have radicalized me to the point where I don't have the, I don't have the energy to talk to white people. 
Like, but you do it every day. And, no, and thank I, God you do. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I, and I'm saying this from this perspective. So let me be really clear. I am not driven by this desire to explain to white people why they should do X, Y, and Z or why they should, you know, I'm not trying to explain us to you. I'm not trying to explain mm. you to you. I'm going to give you, you know, we're going to have conversations with people, but my objective is always for us to remember who we are. Right. All people. And I'm going to give you power tools to build your best life, no matter who you are. But I am not interested in teaching because I'm like, how, how, you know, listening today, you know, to uh, this nonviolent stuff will kill you. And it's like, you know, W.B. Du Bois was like, well, when you're in a tiger's den, you know, being nonviolent is suicide and is stupid, you know, and yeah, but like, if you have no humanity, how do I reach you? If you can live in this world and watch everything that's going on and self-segregate, which means that's a willful, I'm not trying to be around those people, you know, and not look at what, you know, all, oh, Brittany Griner deserves it because, you know, well, you know, black, the same tropes, right? If you and, and black people have the same anti-blackness. If you can live in this world and watch what's going on and not look at yourself and understand your contribution, I don't know what I'm going to do to, 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 you know, and I can't spend that energy when there's so much work. Like you said, people are hungry, unhoused. They're folk that need knowledge. I need to spend my in, in energy helping to liberate folk that want to be free. First of all, like Harriet, you know, it's like, okay. Right. You want to be free? All right, let's go. Here's the plan. Do you want to be free? If you want to be free, we're over here we're getting over. free. I'm not coming to, you know, knock on your door. I'm not going to, excuse me, be a Jehovah's Witness or, you know, I'm not begging you to liberate yourselves. I'm just not. I'm not so, so, so what happens when that behavior impacts everybody, though? Well, this nonviolent stuff will kill you. Um, at some point, there has to be this. I've been processing this too, Dr. Carr. Consequences and repercussions need to <laughs> come back. Come on, now. Come on Like, there should be direct consequences for your bad behavior towards me. I'm going to teach you how to treat me. That's that's what I'm saying. And this goes for all relationships, your personal relationships with your parents, with your, your loved ones, you know, your paramours, you know, intimate relationships. You have to treat people. I was, I was um, saying this yesterday about Twitter. I'm not jumping back on Twitter because I feel like you violated me. You touched me inappropriately. You did. Mm -hmm. You allowed something to happen to me. So I'm not just going to run all back and be like, oh, thank you for giving me my account back. And oh, no, no, yeah. no, no, no. I'm going to sit in this for a minute and figure out what your repercussions are going to be for allowing for an entire week to go by and allowing somebody to violate my, my sanctity of a space that we've agreed on. And let me figure out what your consequence, but there must be a consequence. It can't just be business mm -hmm. as usual. We can't just go back to being holding hands and singing Kumbaya. And I feel like most of us do not set parameters and boundaries around how you're going to treat us. And collectively, we have eroded this understanding of what consequences mean. You know, and I'm not talking violence. I'm saying there should be consequences. There should be economic consequences. There should definitely be some social consequences. You you're not going to take our music and our TikTok dances and all. No, we're going to put boundaries around everything that is us until you learn how to treat us, until you learn how to behave. Well, we're going to need a we to do that, though. Uh, you, there, there are too many who profit. I mean, I'm glad that you raised uh, Charlie's book because what we see there is these are people who are not looking to white people for validation. When 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 Charlie Cobb, when Bob Moses talks about coming to Mississippi, Ella Baker and them sent him, like I said, his daddy them, because his 
as we know, Bob Moses was raised in New York. His father worked at the 369th Armory. That's the Harlem Hellfighters Armory in New York. And his uncle was a professor of architecture at Hampton. And Bob Moses went to Hampton to visit with his family, his uncle and them. And he heard Wyatt T. Walker, who was organizing at the time for Southern Christian Leadership Conference while he was, uh, you know, there with his uncle. And it so struck him because he was like, we hear about Martin Luther King, but why is he Walker? He's talking about organizing the people. So Bob Moses goes back home to New York. At the time, I think he had finished in Hamilton. He's a math guy. You know, he's a math, uh, math major. And then he goes into math education, this kind of thing. Uh, Moses has a, let me think if I remember correctly. Bob Moses had a two or three year commitment to Horace Mann. I think that's where he was teaching math. And so he couldn't finish. He, he, he had another year to go on his commitment, but he started working at the SNCC office in New York. SNCC, there is no SNCC. Well, there is a SNCC, but it ain't the student not, you, it isn't the student nonviolent coordinating committee. It's the first SNCC, the Southern Negro Youth Conference. Story for another day. We talked about that before. But um, he is working at the Southern Christian Leadership Conference office, Bayard Rustin. Actually, I mean, I've seen it as a Bayard Rustin movie. Okay, everybody, all these movies people put together, go to the movie if you want. That's fine. But please don't skip over the literal lives of the people. You cannot learn the history. You cannot learn the memory of our people through movies. Okay, I'm just going to say this. Anyway, Moses ends up going back. He's looking for Ella Baker. Ella Baker isn't in the office for a little while. So then they send him out. Eventually, between 1960 and 61, he ends up in, uh, in, in, in North Carolina, then Georgia. And he goes to Mississippi, coming to the point that you raise in profit. When... Bob Moses, who he and Charlie Cobb, thickest thieves, right? Last time I saw Bob Moses, in fact, before he became ancestor, him and Charlie Cobb together, among others, with, with his, their snake comrades. When he gets there, Bob Moses said, this is where I got my education. These are not the politicians. Hell, you can't really win elective office, you black in Mississippi at that time. These are not the people who are up in white folks' faces negotiating. This ain't, In other words, this ain't in our common parlance now, the diversity, equity, and inclusion crowd. These them Negroes mind their business, own neighbor. This is Vernon Dahmer, and now this is uh, uh, Amzi Moore. You know, shout out to uh, Amzi Moore the second prof. Amzi Moore, Chicago State. Just saw he and his his sons came from HBCU tour. Saw them last month. We talked about that AP uh, African Studies class. Amzi and them were in town. But at any rate, his father, Amzi Moore, Bob Moses and them, Charlie Cobb and them, you know, will tell you these are the people that trained us about struggle and they were not academics they were not you know and then and then the young people they met in mississippi dory ladner joyce ladner these these are the you know so i, I guess what i'm saying to underscore what you're saying to us prof you know these are not people who are looking for inclusion but neither are they looking to center their struggle in what white people want and they can bring white people around it too so when man says here for example he says he's talking about these white people, these white bodies led by these white prisoners in this document. He says, we are not happy in America. Our lives are bitter, ugly, depressing, frightening and terribly lonely. We are born with a natural instinct to be with each other, to be with other people, to help other people, to build a life of mutual benefit with other people. We are born as living things on a planet of living things. We're animals of which humans are only one of many. Plants, water, land have a natural energy to live together in peace and harmony. But much of the world is still dominated by a small group of demented people. These madmen control the lives of close to 2 billion people. This is, of course, 1972. We're talking about eight now, right? 
inflicting misery and suffering on them for their own psychopathic needs for money and power. These killers should be placed in mental institutions. At the least, the worst of them should be eradicated as we would eradicate a nuclear bomb that might still go off or a cancer that might grow back again. With them off our necks, the possibilities of human happiness Wait. would be incredible. This is white people, right? That's what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying? He said, Let's but we just can't wait to that for a second, Dr. Carr. Yes, of course. This Absolutely. Is white people. This is white people. Talking about a white power structure that is also oppressing them. A global white power structure. That's exactly right. So if you are so-called white and you're not thinking like that, <laughs> we shouldn't have any time for you. Well, you know what happened, of course. You then send the full weight of the entire state apparatus against people like this. And then you wait a decade or two. And in between, you ply people with enough television and radio and so that you then, they this has been completely forgotten. And then you do what every oppressive uh, structure does. You then begin to get the people to blame each other for their condition. And so I just read his last sentence here. He says, let me see, wait, let me see. He says, but we just can't wish these people away. That's what he said. The American empire is a worldwide military dictatorship ruling by brute force. It will take power and force to end their rule. Now, we don't have a shortage of clear thinking on this. This is why study is important. So we study and when we're going to act, study and action are a part of the same organic whole. These are not either or. In fact, there's a there's a text that came out, and I would recommend this to everybody. It came out last year. It's called The Red Deal. The Red Deal. Indigenous action to save our earth. The Red Nation. There's no author on this. It's, it's a collective author. I'll just read you the uh, it's dedicated to the liberation of native peoples from capitalism and colonialism and centers native political agendas and struggles through direct action advocacy and education. Now, why is that important? This is what he says. This is what the Red Nation says. It says, this is the introduction. Let's read it real quick. There is something about the weather. Last year, bushfires in Australia scorched 46 million acres, an area larger than Hungary and Portugal combined. Flames shot nearly a half mile in the air, killing 34 humans and more than a billion animals, other animals. In the United States, over 8 million acres burned. This is 2020, the summer of reckoning, right? Killing 37 people and displacing countless others. Swarms of locusts darkened the sky in parts of East Africa and West Asia, devouring plants and fruits as they tore through the land, leaving hardly a scrap of green. A single living swarm in Kenya amassed to a size three times larger than New York City. Tens of millions of people across the globe faced increasing feud insecurity. It goes on to talk about the Caribbean and other places, and then it talks about coronavirus, and then it talks about uh, the, the, the water defenders in, in the Dakotas, and then brings in, says, and the people talk about the Green New Deal like it's something that should be, he said, we ain't even talking about the Green New Deal. In fact, we're going to talk about the Red Deal, the indigenous deal, and then they draw from the liberation struggles of African people globally, and in the United States, and Africa, the Caribbean, other, the indigenous struggles throughout the Western Hemisphere. And they said, in fact, we're not going to call it the Red New Deal. Why? It's not new. There's a reason we call Nubia the renewed normal. This book is saying we've been telling, we we lived this way. 
capitalism landed on us and, and, and hit all of us as human beings. But to your observation, Prof, we're in a moment now where we don't have a shortage of memory, of blueprints. It's going to require this study. That's why we're working so hard and have established this space where we have targeted study and focused study. And again, we're just getting started. Again, I worked this week on that introduction to Africana States class. We're going to mount in the fall. And as I was doing it, I'm thinking, okay, we will pilot some things in the fall. I've been talking about this all along, but in the spring, I'm just going to say this and say less. Keep your eye on May because I even got the name for it, but I ain't going to say it right now because I'm, you know, again, but we're going to take some collective trips. We've been talking about this a long time. When we were at Barracoon, we were talking about that. Mobile on the list, but we're going to talk. But anyway, Dan Kaufman, this is last week's New Yorker. Dan Kaufman has an article in here called The Takeover. Will Wisconsin's Republicans make voting meaningless or merely difficult? Mm. And so to your observation, Prof, these are white people in the state of Wisconsin, legislators, business people who are in power and, and want to be in power forever. And they will be in power forever. Of course, that power may not extend beyond their their, their cars or the, house, the, 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 the building they're in once the United States breaks up. Keep going. You're about to break it. I'm not sad about that at all. But the vast majority of people who are supporting them without a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of, as old folks used to say, you know, you are doing this because you have been, to use Malcolm's words, bamboozled, hoodwink, run amok let astray. It's one thing about the nation of Islam. They know how to put them phrases together. And so when you say run amok, that means the distractions have so taken over your life. You're just moving. You don't need led astray. Now you're looking up, you're in the desert. And you think that you don't have health care or clean water because of this N-word. Or, 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 or insert your invective for whoever you want to blame it on. Right, because now they're talking about monkeypox, and these people swearing, trying to make it into a gay disease. I'm like, are you are you serious right now? As if, <laughs> okay, here we go again. But what you're raising is very important because there are moments when there are moments when you have a a, um, a critical mass of people who are able to punch through, and in those moments, even capitalism has to pause to absorb some of that dissent. Hence, Random House. Hence, you know, uh, hence. Hardcore brace, Germanovich. Hence, here, here. Hence, blood in my eye. George Jackson, the prison letters. Uh, Bantam books. You understand? Wait, these are revolutionaries. Yeah, but they're no, 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 no. They're not. These aren't revolutionaries. They're widgets. We're selling widgets. We sell you whatever you want. Now, come forward to 2022. Who publishes those? Paul Coates, Black Classic Press. In other words, it is our obligation not to get distracted. Now, as we think about this here in Black August. And I just pause here to mention that, you know, the, the conventional discussion of August comes in. The, these are the dog days, right? They call it the dog days. We, uh, I don't know. People probably think, well, why do you call August the dog days? Well, we call it the dog days because it's hot as hell and the dogs are ain't even running around. Well, actually, it's because Sirius rises, the brightest star in the sky. And you have to take this back to the classical Africans, the Egyptians. Sirius is known in Greek and Roman mythology borrowing from the egyptians of course as the hot star for the greeks it is the star that they uh, affiliate associated with military action also with love and romance the hot the hot 
emotions, the hot passions. For the people of Kemet, of course, they're a lot more scientific about this. They look at this, the rising and setting of the stars as, as part of the way they map their calendars. But Sirius, that's why it comes, it's the dog star, so to speak. In fact, the, the Romans would say that's why the dogs have rabies. They get it from Sirius. It's the hot thing. It drives you mad. So we're in these dog days of August, but it's called Black August because, of course, this is the month that has so many things we've talked about in, in Nubia and so many things we've talked about in narrative. And, of course, some so many things we've talked about over the arc of in class here on Saturdays, um, whether it be the assassination of Jonathan Jackson. And, of course, we know Blood in My Eye opens with a visit to the cemetery where Jonathan Jackson is buried uh, by his mother, Georgina, who says, my dear only surviving son, she's writing to George. I went to Mount Vernon, Mount Vernon, August the 7th, 1971. That would be 51 years ago tomorrow to visit the gravesite of, of my heart. Your keepers murdered in cold disregard for life. His grave was supposed to be behind your grandfathers and grandmothers, but I couldn't find it. There was no marker, just mowed grass. The story of our past. I sent the keeper a blank check for a headstone and two extra sites, blood in my eye. Those two sites, of course, were for her and for him. A little bit she noted two weeks later on the 21st of August, her other son, George, would be murdered by these people. This nonviolent stuff will get you killed, as, as, as they're saying. And, uh, and, and I love how Charlie Cobb tell that story, how they in the courthouse and the, and the judge is like, his brother comes in with them guns on his hip. He said, take them guns off. And the black man looked at him and said, I'll take mine off when he take his off, pointing at the deputy. So what does the judge do? He tell the deputy to take his guns off. Like, this is Mississippi. I know y'all got them eyes on the prize. And shout out to Henry Hampton, to the entire crew who put together Eyes on the Prize. If you read uh, John Elsa's book, True South, He'll tell you about the making of Eyes on the Prize, Ken Burns, whatever. When you look at Henry Hampton, they convened here in this city in Washington, D.C., they convened and had debates and discussions. They brought all the people in. So by the time you hear Julian's voice, Julian Bond's voice in Eyes on the Prize, this is something that's been chopped and screwed and thoroughly and using that, still using that Houston language. The, uh, they've, it's been mixed and remixed, and a lot of stuff is left out. The outtakes on the Eyes on Eyes on the Prize alone. And they are these long interviews with quote Stortley Carmichael, Kwame Ture. They're just brilliant. So when you see Eyes on the Prize, even second series of Eyes on the Prize, you're only seeing snippets and it's woven together to face a social structure. But there's enough of governance in there. If you're paying careful attention, Dave Dennis still around, you know, again, one of uh, Bob Moses' chief lieutenants in the Algebra Project, among other things, at the funeral of James Cheney, who was killed, of course, with, with Schwerner and Goodman there in Philadelphia, Mississippi, buried in Philadelphia, Mississippi. They, um, you see the passion. These are very carefully selected notions. If you talk to uh, uh, my dear friend and sister, Elder uh, Judy Richardson, still around, who worked as producer on Eyes and the Prize, one of the, had it really her hands on so much in there. She'll tell you, you know, these are brutal decisions. Why? Because how are you going to tell a story in a country that isn't a nation that want stories that make it feel good about being a nation. At the same time, black people watching this, and we know it ain't no damn nation. We know. We know. And in a minute, we'll talk about Brittany Griner and them in a second. But I mean, I just want to, you know, because how are you going to talk to everybody and at the same time, and different people see different things? Mm. You know, I mean, it, but 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 you're punching through that with this nonviolent stuff. That nonviolent stuff will get you killed because you know, at some point we have to pass these stories on and, and reading and, and study is key in that. Um, oh, wonderful. Wonderful. I think, uh, 
So yeah. let me let me just say very quickly, here we are in Black August. Here we are at the beginning of Black August. Here we are uh, in this continuing building momentum called Nubia and narrative and folks are coming and coming and coming. And we now it's almost, it's almost time for school to start. People are going back to school as early as next week. I think they go back in Georgia next week. And I mean, so much other good stuff going on. Uh, universities getting ready to come back in, but we are not about to shift that center of momentum back to the periphery. This is the center and forming all those other places. And in a minute, we are going to be able to see some of the beautiful formations that have emerged even over the arc of these two years in, in that bullseye of community first. Study, community, family, and we build out of that strength, out of our strength. And our strength is the community, not the institutions that ostensibly supposed to help the community. No, in the community. So I'm going to pause with that for a second here. You ready? You ready to bring in? Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's bring in Sister Aya Fubara and Neely. Is that how you say that? I hope yeah, so. Yeah. Uh, there she is. Are they there? Yeah. Um, the, for some reason, the image isn't showing up. Hopefully, they're not there. Oh. Okay. There we go. Hey, can y'all see us? Hi. Hi, baby. Hi. 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 Everyone looks so beautiful. Oh. oh, you oh look, you know what? Where are you? In in Opobo. You're in Opobo town. Yes, sir. Ah what is uh how do you say hello? Which language do you speak first? Is Igbo? Yes. How do you say hello? We Tell him you couldn't hear him. We don't hear you. How do you say hello in Igbo? Are you on? I can hear. Sister Aya, Sister Aya, can you hear us? Okay. They're putting it now. Okay. All right. Well, they they could uh they could hear for a minute. Yeah. Sister Aya, can you hear us? Can you hear? Can you hear them? Yes. Yeah. Yes. He can hear you. Okay. Right. If we so can't, what was the question you asked? How do you say hello in Igbo? How do you say hello? Okay. Olia. 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 Oh yeah, they took us and I don't remember the language anymore. <laughs> so hey look, will you uh Aya, will you help who who do we have here? Everyone, if you introduce okay, let's yourself. Have, let's have you introduce yourself. Introduce yes. yourself. Okay. Tell him your name. My name is Confidence. My name is Bilha. My name is Fable. And my name is Prosper. Ah, how old are you? I'm 10. I'm 12. I'm 11. I'm 10. And you're from Opobo. Ah, where are you right now? The world is watching you. Where Opobo are you? Library. You're in the library? It's a library? Yes, in my Johnson Library. In my Johnson Library. Emergency Lego library. library. Ah, is it new? 
Lirigo Library. Imagine see Lirigo Library. <laughs> this is beautiful. Is um, is it a new library? Is it a new library? Yes. Really? Everyone looks so beautiful. Aya, will you? Mom, you're in the show now. Yes. Will you? Uh, will you introduce the world to these young people we're meeting and where they are and what? Okay, give me on? one second. I will. Let's do this. I'm right back. Everybody. Okay. Also Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Yes, we can. Yes. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yes. Okay. But well, we can't see you. Okay. You so see. you guys know um, this is a vision creates really the first functional library in Opobo Kingdom. was founded back in 1870 by King Jaja and the chiefs of 14 war Cato houses. So this is it's actually a rest and we have teams in this like three-story building. So I'm going to take you guys through it. So this is the hall, the stairwell that people come up in. You see the um, banner that talks about the library. We're still we putting things up. But here, we, we, we can't see. That these uh, Nigerian distinctions, these trees in the way they were drawn, all Africans, and then turn this side. They can't Okay, okay. Now we have we two can. rooms that we're I'm going to take you into the smaller room first. Okay. If you can see us. Yes. This is our smaller room. This is really where we work more with the kindergarten, pre kindergarten, first, second grade students. And so a lot of the books here are for that age. Um, all of our books, really, the majority of our books are centered on our culture, our history, um, if you can, over this way, written Well, and of course, that's where students are learning the Ibani language, because we're trying to revitalize that part of the culture. Ibani. Yes, Ibani. Ah, is that Madu? And then this is the larger room. Over here. Of course, you can have framework. Oh, yeah, the Africana framework up. Hey, Madu, what's up, brother? <laughs> oh, you all right. Hey, so we got people working. All the Anellis are here. All the Anellis are working. That's right. And of wow. course, you got Marcus Garvey. A little Ooh. bit of our Black history here, where they can come. A lot of different people. You've seen the. Here are the books. You can see some of the bookshelves, literature. We've got a whole history section. So, newbie, as you know, when you donated. Math, science, of course, the encyclopedias. I'm sorry, what did you say? No, I said all the Nubians, everybody who supported the library, now you see where those books went. Yeah. Wow. And the science section. And so the idea is to really build this out. Right now we have like 2,300 books in here in this, in this room and in the other room. 
And um, we are hoping that now that we've proven that this is needed and that the young people are actually going to take advantage of it, that the leadership of Opobo Kingdom go ahead and give us a permanent location that is more accessible as well and that allows us to grow and build out. Ah. And so I'm going to go backstage so you can talk to the kids. Okay, okay. Thank you. Hello, everybody. What? Oh, wait, I think it's on mute. I can't hear you. You had to unmute the, uh, I think it's on, on, okay, they're going to, they're about to, un ah, thank you, thank you, Bob. yes, sir. Let me ask, can, can we ask you a, a few questions? Yes. Thank you, thank you. What do you like the most about the library? Anybody can answer. I know confidence was starting first, usually. Yes, confidence will start. You got the right name. You got the right name, sister. Oh, yeah, I just asked them, what do they love most about the library? What do they okay, so about? sometimes you're... He said, what do you like most about the library? I like reading. Oh. I like reading and I like hearing when I I missed that last part. You like reading and one more time. Come closer. It froze a little bit. That's all. And he couldn't hear you. I like reading and I like hearing when Mama Gloria is teaching us about the Bible. Oh, yes. Mama Gloria. She's your teacher, huh? Yes, sir. And you're learning Ibani. He's lagging. <laughs> can you hear us? Yes, we can, but the, the connection is really okay. tough and it's it's hard to can you hear us? We can hear you, but the connection is really tough and it's hard. The connection is the connection is really tough. So you've seen the library. Yes, we are going to have a videotape of everything we're doing, and with permission, we will post and share with Nubia. Absolutely, with permission, we we demand it, and we love these babies are so beautiful. First of all, and I am so excited about you coming back, Aya, and giving us a full report. Mm -hmm. uh, and Nubia, we're gonna have to spend some time, maybe in office hours or in class, yeah. uh, to get a full report. When are you coming back to Texas? August fifteenth. Okay. All right, so that's next week. Okay. And today is the grand opening, yes? Today, in a few minutes. Oh, well, in that case, all we right. will see you all later. Thank yeah. you. Nice to meet you. What do you nice think? to meet you. Bye. We'll see you soon. Yes, so beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. No, thank you. One day we'll see you in person. Yeah. <laughs> what? Huh? Give me yeah. a bomb. Give me a bomb. Thank, give me a bomb. Thank you, anybody. Give me a bomb. Anybody. I'm not even going to attempt it because I know I'm going to butcher Well, it. I mean, we got we to gotta learn. I mean, and it's just supposed to know uh, that region of, of, of Nigeria, primary, the primary language is Igbo. Uh, I think Aya and her family uh, on her side, I think her husband, Ken, 
Igbo side, but on their side, they are Ibibio, which is another nation. But Ibani is like the old language. It's like when you talk to Ethiopians and they all speak, you know, they may speak Amharic, but if you say Ge'ez, Ge'ez is like the old, that's the liturgical language, that's the original language of Christianity. <laughs> that's the old language. Ge'ez speak. So Ibani is like, the those, those children don't learn Ibani. In their own homes. I mean, this is like language imperial. I mean, in the sense that Igbo is a is a larger formation. Right. But that that library, and when we saw those books, please understand, y'all, newbie and narrative. Anything you sent, the books you sent, the money you sent, all that stuff was sent to Texas. They packed all that stuff up. And we're gonna see it because they're filming everything. That was her oldest son, Madu, I think. That was their oldest son who was, was Tim. Those boxes arrived, them same U-Haul boxes we buy here. They made it to Lagos. They then went to Port Harcourt. And from Port Harcourt, they came to Opobo Town, which is you still got to travel. <laughs> so they in the Niger Delta. I'm just, I mean, that's us. We were, we were, we doing. <laughs> there were uh, just a few un, un, uh, seasoned, un, um I don't want to say indoctrinated because that's such a, a colonized word. What we do here, I feel, doesn't exist anywhere else in the sense of a community, right? And I'm sure there are pockets of it. Of course. But there are thousands and thousands of us. And the level of trust that we have to have, I know people who sent money and books from like, what's going to happen with my money and my books, you know? And now you get to see that manifest. And it's like, there's a there's something here that, that I know we have to fight through all the time, which is the skepticism and the you know, the anti-blackness that we just naturally have, the distrust that has been fomented since they brought us in bondage in, in the holes of ships, where we have to, you know, look at each other differently. And some of us manifest that in our lives where we are untrustworthy, you know, but I feel like the more we practice what that looks like to, to share, build, those of us who can, not everyone can donate, not everyone can participate, but we all can um, have good energy. <laughs> we all can do that. That costs you nothing, That's you know? Right. So to be able to be in a space where months and months ago, you donated without any idea of what was going to happen with your money or your books. And now to see it manifest today reinforces who we are, who we are to each other and who, who we, we should be, who the we is. Right. That's who the we is. Those children here would be what? Third grade, fourth grade. And you saw they had their best on. I wanted to ask them about the coral because you saw the kind of coral uh, necklaces they had on. You know, coral really big in West Africa, particularly Nigeria. And they had white on. They're there for a ritual. And when we see the footage, I anticipate as they were telling me yesterday about it and during the week about it, um, there's a ritual being performed now by the adults who have started yesterday. And so this celebration is getting ready to culminate in this return ritual. You And people say, well, you know, you have people, I ain't no African. Okay, so what do you say to someone, a child who was born in an African country who has not been able to connect even to some of the pre-colonial language and cultural formations because of the impact of whiteness in Africa. You heard that child say her name was Confidence. And you hear, when you hear those names, those are English names now. Now, and it's interesting because, again, the governance question asks who we are to each other. And then that third category is ways of knowing. How did or do Africans remember, uh, kind of make sense of the world? Well, guess what? That's an African name. Confidence is not an African name. No, 
the logic behind why that child is named confidence. We had a strong connection and we could have asked her parents why, because they are speaking that value into her. So while the word is English, the culture underneath it is African. <laughs> you understand? And so to hear those names, Africa isn't absent, but now they, those children are benefiting from the momentum of memory as the direct result of Africans who are not in Nigeria from all over the world who have said, we're going to help y'all too. This is the week. <laughs> That's a beautiful thing. And the 10-year-old at the end's name was Prosper. Prosper. Come on now. You know, um, I'm I'm in um, one of the benefits of, of being hacked on Twitter and then not having access is my time returned to me and I didn't realize how much of it was being spent. So that's going to be a consequence, a positive consequence, because consequences can be positive as well. No but I've, I've been editing a, a book of Akan symbols, uh, mm. symbols uh, that uh, two Nubians, oh, Dr. Nana There you go. Yes. 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 Yeah, Nancobra, this, is, this is my mug from the New York African burial ground. Shout out to my people up there. We'll be seeing y'all soon. Oh, yes. Yes. So, you know, but we now are in community with 12 symbols, 12 Adinkra symbols that Dr. Nanny Yao and Michelle Yaboa are sussing out for us. Now that's that's Ghana, you know, you talk about Nigeria, but there's a common thread of together community of, you know, naming things that mean something, not just Carvassier and Moet and, you know, uh, uh, Alizé, you know, but the naming, the, the names mean something. These symbols mean something and they they require something of us. You know, if you're going to put a tattoo on your body of one of these symbols, you're going to have one of these symbols as part of your, you know, you, you got to know what it means. So we're, we're I'm working on a, um, editing the book and it's already amazing. I'm sitting there like, wow, we really are people of community from inception. Like oh, no and if we don't remember that piece, none of the things that happen next will matter. So That's right. Yeah. No, that's right. And, and we have to, in remembering that piece, we know that it's very human because for a long time, Africans were the only humans. In fact, there's a brand new book uh, out by William McCaskill, who is a philosopher. It's called What We Owe the Future. He's a philosopher. I think he's at Oxford or somewhere, which is of no consequence in this conversation. I actually found out about it and then went looking for it as a result of our brother, Howard French. Uh, who had directed folks' attention to an opinion piece that um, Professor McGaskill wrote in the New York Times. And I went and looked and I said, oh, okay. Very interesting because he says, imagine, if you will, the human existence. At, imagine that each one of us is going to live from the beginning of humanity to the end. And he says, that means that our lives started, which it really is true. I mean, not as individual units, but it's connected to this long arc. He says, our lives started with the origin of humanity. And of course, we know that almost all that story is an African story until the migrations. If you take Homo sapiens back before they were Homo sapiens. He says, so this current moment we're living in, don't experience it as only looking backward for what we can learn, but also look at it toward the future. So, you know, McCaskill says things like, if you break a glass and keep walking on this break a glass on the sidewalk and keep walking are you thinking about the human being that might cut her foot on that glass tonight or tomorrow or next year or 20 years from now or a century from now no he said 
you know, what do we owe the future? He said, if you think about it that way, you would think differently about everything. And of course, we know that that's not how Western society thinks about things. So, of course, a Western philosopher would have to be playing catch up. But to what you've observed and what you're working on, uh, Prof, and of course, footnote, when we are able to be withdrawn from this perpetual world of distraction, it has transformative, transformative effects. And like you say, as you discovering and, and rediscovered. Um, so back to back to what I was saying at the, out of that footnote, as you are engaged in this process, which is really no different from the metanature we're learning with, with, with Dr. Beatty on Tuesdays here, or actually now in, in perpetuity, living now in Nubia, those those recordings. And now we're up into the 20s in terms of lessons, which is truly, truly remarkable. I was looking at one that Mario was doing. I'm saying this is highly advanced work, metanature work, Egyptian hieroglyphs work. But at any rate, it's no different than study of metanature. And I remember the first maybe year we were doing Metanature with Dr. Obenga, Theophile Obenga. We were at the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations Conference. And I remember saying, when you begin to learn that language, which is which is written as well, it's an inscription system like the Adinkra, you they start talking to you. And you realize I'm having a conversation, not just translating into a language I know, which in that case would have been English, or your case would have been English. No, the concepts overflow those 26 character script system we call the alphabet, and you begin to connect to the to the way of knowing underneath it. So you see a symbol like Sankofa, you see this is the peacetime Sankofa, as we say. So these figures, these bird figures are facing each other. It's community. Everything is turning inward except the little spike at the bottom, but there's also a wartime Sankofa. At the bottom, this wouldn't be curled. This would be straightened out. Straightened out. Why? Because that Sankofa means we may have to get aggressive, but I may not have to get aggressive. We may have to get, why? Because remember, it's all about community. We are facing each other. Mm -hmm. And so again, this is the this is one of the symbols. This is again, I think about all my people, my man Jimmy Cleckley and them at the New York African burial ground. This is one of the mugs that they have there. And uh, we're going back to the burial ground. We're going back. I'm, I know I'm going to go up there probably September, October. I'm only trying to decide now, and I guess COVID will have a lot to do with that, COVID, monkeypox, whatever other virus is coming down the pike, as to whether or not I, you know, try to get some people to go. Because at this stage, and again, we're talking about this intro class we're doing in Nubia, um, it is it is community-based by definition. And to the degree that we involve you know, learning institutions, it won't be one learning institution. I mean, for many years when I was teaching freshman, we were teaching freshman seminar at Howard, we would take the freshman seminar students, even as many as four buses a week for on Saturdays for a whole month to get everybody there. And that actually began not with freshman seminar, but with my introduction to African American studies class the week of the year after the reinterment of those ancestors, we started going up there. And so now in some ways it's returning uh, it's a renewed normal, not going to put buses of Howard students going to New York. No, going to open it up and say, this is the weekend we will be at the New York African burial ground. Anybody want to come, come. And because now we are returning this Africana studies concept to the Black Studies Foundation, which is community. Universities are other places that should be connected to the, to the community, but the community is the source of this. So anyway, I said, I'd like to say that the Sankofa symbol 
I think about my man Mike Blakey, uh, the ancestor Mark Mack, which we named who we named that trip for the, the part of it that was connected to Howard. That Sankofa symbol was found on one of the uh, in one of the burials, one of the ancestors who had been uh, disturbed and then who was sent to Howard University, where the Montague Cobb lab um, for many years under the direction of Mike Blakey, then Mark Mack, then the great father of Linda Coleman Jackson, um, an anthropo anthropological anthropological biologist. Um, still around sister who has you know, done incredible work on the human genome project. She and her sister, Georgia Dunstan, and so many others. These are Africans committed to us. You understand? The university is just a place you go get some skills, but ultimately the community is where this work takes place. But, you know, there was some discussion and I've, you know, I've got the books over there. In fact, they sell them at the burial ground. People saying, well, that wasn't a Sankofa symbol. That wasn't. But when you look at the monument, that Sankofa symbol is the is the symbol among with along with a number of other symbols that surround the monument the great uh uh brother rodney leon uh haitian african african haitian who designed who won the design competition to build it and i would have brother call in fact i need to connect with him again but on the side of the major structure in the larger monument complex there in lower manhattan is the sankofa symbol and to your observation, Prof, as with all of those Adinkra symbols in one way or the other, every one of them speaks to the underlying way of knowing of community. There is no individual without community. And it is so powerful. They just start speaking to you. And as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, wow, you were sitting there and they was just talking to you. That's, yeah. the, <laughs> that's centuries over the centuries coming to you in your mind. Oh, um, man. I'm going to add one that's not so popular. Whoa! Yeah, um, I know I'm probably mispronouncing it, and Dr. Nana Yao will definitely spend some time with us as we, because um, this is going to be one of, you know, in addition to Lincoln Little, that um, that book, that uh, graphic novel that um, our brother really? is working on, yes. that we're going to be publishing in, in narrative. Uh, this will also be first first you know the nubians will be the first to to have access to this and um mm -hmm. and they're also working on a children's version because as we saw those babies today you know uh somebody said um how do i deal with violence in baltimore and i was like no that's not how we should be looking at it we should be looking at how do we infuse community where we are that's because true. that's the only way to deal with violence is to change the mindset of the people that are there so what programs can you, you know, deal with young people around loving each other and seeing each other and, and seeing one another as brothers and sisters? And, you know, that's got to be the work, not dealing with violence, because now you're dealing with, the, you know, you're, you're, bar you're buying into the argument, you know, that doesn't free us. What frees us is community. So that's right. In fact, go, go, get, uh, go get Charles Payne. If you get Bob Moses' book with others, Quality Education is Constitutional Right. The chapter one is called Miss Baker's Grandchildren, an interview with the Baltimore Algebra Project. To your point, these young people, Moses, yeah. like we get them in there. These are the children that they said couldn't do math, but you didn't yeah. go in there and say, I'm going to teach you math. You went in there like, what's your name? Tell me about your. And so when they came in, they wait, wait, you're not treating me as a problem? Of course not. 
I just want to know about. And then slowly, not only did they begin to master algebra, they then took on the Baltimore public schools. They went to the school board meeting, like, where our money going? Because now we've studied the budget and we know math. We don't go. Then they went and called for the resignation of the state superintendent of Maryland because they said this is educational malpractice. Well, you no, we read the budget. Which well, I read the budget. I thought y'all couldn't do math because you never came in. You treated me like a problem. This is what you said. These young people on fire. If you want to know how to stop violence about them, go find the people in the Baltimore Algebra Project or my man, uh, the, the people at the leaders of the beautiful struggle. There's a whole lot of community organizations in Baltimore doing that work. Yeah, go go find those people. Anyway, so 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 you showed us show us the adinkra again, Prof. You get to walk us through that symbol. So this yes. is um, it's called Intesi, N T E S I E. I'm sure it's not pronounced that way, but as you mentioned to the young people, uh, our language was stolen from our yeah. <laughs> so yeah. so our tongues are not quite uh, you know wrapping ourselves around it. And this is a symbol of wisdom. And uh, it literally says, I have heard and kept it. That's that's what the symbol fosters. I have heard and kept it. And it teaches the importance of meditating on information received to gain wisdom and knowledge, to ponder issues before acting on them. It warns against gossip and rumor. It says to listen with intent to receive information versus preparing a response. That's the substance of this symbol in Tessie. I've heard and kept it. The true wisdom comes when one receives information and thoughtfully weighs a response. In the Akan culture, wise people are the ones who hold what they have heard for future recollection. It stresses that the importance of hearing something is not for gossip as gossip is destructive and counterproductive to developing stable communities. We were given two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, two hands, and one mouth. We have been given many sensory inputs to take in information and one orifice to deliver a statement once that information has been deliberated. This symbol truly embodies the sense of I hear you and I understand you. So this is the this is the work that Nubians, when we say bring a brick, this is the brick that these two Nubians have, have brought. And I'm looking forward to finishing this up uh, so that we can have it published before the new year. So so beautiful and, and such a powerful reminder it reminds me of monday night when we were in office hours and for the folks who are not or not yet in the nubia space are not in the nubia space understand all of this builds through momentum and that that is um titsi that is such a powerful reminder the uh in metunetia there's a word tef tef which um you know, Jacob Perellis would translate that as idle chatter. In other words, people are saying words, but then not say anything. Or in the parlance of James Brown, talking loud and saying nothing. Is <laughs> or signifying? Is it? In other words, you are saying something, but you're, you're talking, but you're not saying anything. The Egyptians had a concept like that. Now, of course, for the for Kemet to listen, Sejim is the height of intelligence, as he was saying, Taotep. Good speech, Medunefer, can be found everywhere. Among, for example, the women pounding grain. You think you got to go to university? No, go over and listen to them sisters talk. Just sit there and listen. In fact, I think about John uh, Barry Hallen's book, The Good, the Bad, and the Beautiful. There's a white guy who immersed himself in, in Yoruba culture in a particular place, particular places in Nigeria. He said, 
he, he's, I was trained as a Western philosopher, but I learned very quickly that if I wanted to study Yoruba, what do you call Yoruba philosophy or ways of knowing, as we would say, and there is no one Yoruba philosophy as such, you know. But he said, you know, I have to approach this by learning the language and then sitting quietly. And then over the arc of just listening to people talk, I began to began to get a peek into a glimpse into and then a deeper immersion into the values of that community. And as I learned, I was able then to ask simple questions. And the answers I got opened up the world to me as to what is considered good, what is considered bad, what is considered beautiful. And Charlie Cobb, Bob Moses, you know, I think about those two in particular, but Charlie Cobb, particularly since you are now receiving his book that nonviolent stuff will get you killed. Many of those stories are stories Charlie Cobb heard by being quiet and going through Mississippi as a kid, as a member of SNCC. And many of those stories he went back to as an adult, a journalist who has traveled through the world. Remember, we have Charlie Cobb's article on when they were in Tanzania, him, Bob Moses, and others who left SNCC after SNCC and went and lived in East Africa trying to see how we move together in terms of building a community. We have that article, Notes on Returning Home, and he has home in quotation marks because wherever we are, we build a we. We have that in, in narrative. It's posted there. Um, and so a lot of those stories are mouth-to-ear stories. You can't hear them by listening just long enough to get the point that you want to make in. And then somebody say, are you listening? Huh? Well, oh, yeah. I wanted to say, no, you weren't listening. <laughs> you, you, you weren't. Li- as you say, as you read there, you say, you know, part of it is not listening so you can argue. Well, well what, wait, what is your objective in sitting here? Is your objective sitting here to, to win? Or this is combat. So you treat, this is what Marimba Ani goes into in her book, Let the Circle Be Unbroken, and then her major book, um, by major book, much longer and much more detailed, Yurugu. She says, she calls it, Marimba calls it, uh, Mama Marimba calls it the rhetorical ethic. She said, when you start reading Aristotle, for example, you know, what is the purpose of speech? Well, the purpose of speech is to win a debate. Well, so y'all are here arguing. So you came in here to listen only enough to figure out how to beat me. Oh, so your philosophy is opposition. Your philosophy is fight. Well, yes, ultimately, but then there's a dialectic and that just sharpens us a bit. And so ultimately it is about community. No, you came in here with bad intent. You try to figure out a way to how to argue with me. And so what, what Marimba calls it is rhetorical ethics. She says, when these people start talking about justice and peace and they start talking about community, that's a rhetorical ethic. In other words, those are words. But when you look underneath peace, peace means let me put more military bases in Africa so that I can help you achieve democracy. Hmm. Yes, because Sajim doesn't mean just to listen with your ear. What did you just walk us through in terms of Ntitsi? How many ways did nature, did the creator, did this thing that convened us create for us to intake? Hmm. 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 Yeah, I heard what you said. Mm-mm. I, I'm looking at you. I feel the pain for what you did. In other words, speech is just one form. And so Marimba said that's a rhetorical ethic. When they start talking, and not just Marimba. I mean, you know, as we used to say when we were in Columbus, Ohio, doing our little uh, "Free Your Mind" show on the radio on Saturdays, 
We've been like, I know some of y'all don't believe it, so we're going to use a good white source. <laughs> Eric, man, <laughs> these white prisoners try to tell y'all that. We don't like this any more than you do, but we've been bamboozled, run them up, let us straight. And so Monday night, as I said, what we, again, had our building, and thanks to Professor Hunter creating that time and space and, and devoting that energy, that time, those resources to, to, to putting it in place. And then now it begins to attract people and as it's continued to attract people and the momentum builds, whether it be a nine, 10 or 11 year old in a Pobo town in Nigeria learning Ibani from an elder, y'all heard her, her mention their teacher. Their teacher is a retired school teacher who uh, is retired and now gets a salary, a nominal salary to teach them Ibani because she know Ibani and she's been there for decades. She's retired now and they brought her out of her house and said, will you? She said, will I? Let's go. And we saw that we saw the chalkboard where they learned the body, these children. So whether it be those children or anyone else here, this 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 space we have that is now connecting these other spaces where people are doing things or haven't yet done things or want to do things, that momentum is accretive. So again, Titsi, this 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 concept, you know, Monday night, uh, Dr. Adams, Catherine Adams, who as I said, is at Claflin. Uh, and dear friend and comrade, you know, who was here this morning, I'm sure. And, you know, when we came in on Monday night, we said, well, you know, Kat, come over and talk to us a little bit about what you're doing at Claflin with the oral history projects and how you're working to connect people. And, and she talks about ways of knowing and how, you know, in South Carolina with her students, she said they ate up ways of knowing because it said, well, you know, you don't start with, well, African. Well, I ain't no African. Hold on. Let's talk about home remedies. You know, your, your, your mom, your grandma, your auntie, your uncle, you got any uh, home remedies? And those conversations began to produce the Africa that endures, the afterlife, the echoes of Africa. And they plowed it right into that conceptual category called ways of knowing. And, and, and as we were talking about this introduction to African studies class that we're debuting shortly in Nubia, the, the format of that class, as I talked about Monday night, is half the class, the first half of the class is going to be the conceptual categories. We'll do at least a week each conceptual category. And then the second half of the class is going to be these framing questions where we apply the conceptual categories through time and space. That's the foundation. Now this fall at Howard, class starts in a couple of weeks, I am shaping my introduction to African-American studies class there to be an extension of that introduction to African-American studies class at, in Nubia. Why? Because if you're coming and paying tuition to be in a formal class, I want you to begin to learn at 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 years old, some of the techniques so that when you leave this 14 weeks here, you will now be equipped to go and continue that work. But the work itself, we're doing the work at the same time. This is actually returning it to the way that we developed those conceptual categories and conversations with Philadelphia Freedom School students back in the early aughts. So it's just returned that. But one of the things Kathy talked about, because she uses those conceptual categories as well or better than anybody I know. She, she and her students have taken it another level. She taught at the University of West Indies. She was at Allen University at one time. Um, she taught a number of different HBCUs. And now she's in South Carolina. She said, I am glad to hear that we're going to slow it down. Because normally I would cover those conceptual categories in an introduction to every states class in the first two weeks. I said, no, because everybody gets governance, ways of knowing. I'm sorry, governance and social structure. They get that because it's right there. It's, oh, okay. 
the challenge then is to connect and by connect i don't mean artificially construct i mean bring out elicit out of our lived experiences how these ways of knowing formations show up how we use science and technology and what exactly that even means we got to have slower conversations more layered conversations bringing our experiences in when we talk about movement and memory how do we how we move through time and space and remember certain moments how does that manifest in our lives and our experiences how do we connect what we know to what we don't know which is the way we should be dealing with education and then of course uh, cultural meaning making that final category we need to spend more time and, and Kat said something that Adam said something Monday night in office hours she said as she came over and we talked about this like we're talking now she said you know that kind of slow work based on study and dialogue that's what really establishes it and so that adinkra symbol you chose to uh to share with us we're living that whether you know from today then tomorrow dr amin sunyata amin you know this whole question how does this connect to the things that will literally keep me healthy and alive and thriving in this space you know whether it be mario Beatty with meta nature he'll be returning shortly from california he's out there at ucla he and dr Watkins. you know he's taking the last leg in this kind of this intensive language intensive they've been doing for two months out there with hbcu students um then continuing through the week echoing through the week and then in a moment like this where we have um what we have all, uh in class but and then everything else the language classes i think are fascinating you just elicited that you remember i hope you don't mind because some people in here may not know what you're talking about when you said those language no oh. and i just wanted to also add we started yoga which is not really yoga it's it's us reconnecting with our bodies with our breath with one another it started on wednesday wellness wednesday we're going to be doing uh yoga with Lindsay. And the first the introduction class, I was like, I didn't know what it was going to be, Dr. Carver. I was like, wow, wow. You know, I have a couple hundred Nubians, 830 in the morning, and we, at the end, just breathe together. I mean, it was so powerful. Um, so even that slow my mind, even now, we know, but then I said, just breathe. And you breathe, like, why am I not doing this all of the time? <laughs> it just opens, oh. Yeah, so... We are slowly putting, and and for me, the, the power of this is people get to watch in real time something evolve, develop, and they're participating in its evolution and development. And you get to see things happen. They happen because we make them happen. We don't sit and complain about things. We are bringing our bricks and participating in the world that we want to live in and it's so beautiful so yes continue i just wanted to add no, no, no. class and then dr tasha is going to be bringing in language classes i'm gonna say yeah 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 uh so uh, my god like she was on my show uh we had her on our show a couple of weeks ago and the when when that class drops is yeah so september we're looking at that so it's just like piece by piece by piece, piece by, by piece. piece of course we're having fun i'm building a game uh we're doing a worry game uh yes, worry yeah worry and spades and oh. tournament style so we're gonna be having like weekly tournaments and we you know so we're, we're, we're doing some things uh out out loud and in in secret you no know question. no yeah. question we say less. yes we say less and that really in terms of revolution there's the definition I mean, we read blood in my eye, for example, George Jackson, 
the book that he that he finished just before he was assassinated. Um, you know, we understand that you know there there's no Bibles as such. In other words, there are no things that are completely self-contained within themselves. Well, actually, let me not let me not say that. Let me not say that. Let me not say that. Reason why? Because Bible just means book, biblos from the Greek. So there are plenty of biblo, <laughs> biblos, plenty of bibloe. I guess maybe I'm trying to remember now my not declensions and conjugations in in Attic Greek. I only took a little bit of it. We only took a little with a. With Theophilo Benga, who insisted that while we were studying Egyptian language, we should study these others. But the point I'm about to make is this: you know, when we start talking about well, which forces will lead revolution, you know, which will be the revolutionary force? We keep talking about revolution. Who's going to lead it? Well, okay, well, it's going to be we. What does that mean? Well, reform might look, for example, education as a way of knowing. You talk about pedagogy. Talk about epistemology or pedagogy, really. Teaching and learning. We need curriculum and instruction. We need learning. So, Medunetcher is something we wouldn't learn. Every word we speak is from languages we learned as children. And some of them, some of them aren't even languages at our mouth. Some of it's sign language, some body language. I, you know, all of it's cultural ways of knowing. The distinction we make here is that as we are acquiring these things we don't know and connecting them to the things that we do know, guess what starts to happen? Connections that we make that we wouldn't have made otherwise. And so we talk about reform. Reform, you know, we're going to tinker around the edges, maybe try to get some more of us in these systems that already exist and see, can we somehow reform them and change them? Hey, in the immediate offing, absolutely. So a child or an adult or whoever in, in Nubia who then goes and says, I want to introduce this in my classroom, my K-12 classroom, my university classroom, my community college class, wherever. Okay, yeah. Revolution is when we together connect the everydayness of our life to the thing we don't yet know and then watch everything change because we built this from us meaning i took metanature i took this other language class i knew the languages i speak and as i'm learning wait look at this connect oh look at this connection that's not going to happen in these other spaces and it's all anchored in weeness meaning now when people come along and say well, you know, when you know, Ebonics, don't call that, no, don't call that black English. Don't call that black English because I know Metanetra now and I know Sejim, I know to listen. I know some Adinkra symbols and in a tree language, I know Ntitsi, which is connected to this whole concept of listening and wisdom, which is here. And I also know my granddaddy used to say a hard head, make a soft behind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. See, I know what I knew, and now I know that my knowledge came from my ancestors who never stopped knowing that, and I picked up a few more languages that were here before they stuffed us on those boats. Now, bring me that Greek again. Well, the Greek, no problem. I'll learn a little Greek here, and I'm going to show you where you went off the rails. As Solon told him, you Greeks are so stupid, you don't even make good children. You're like children. You come here, and you, don't, you learn just enough to go somewhere and win an argument. And guess what? Now I don't go to Princeton or Hampton. Now I don't go to Berkeley or Harvard or Howard. Now I don't go to University of Chicago or Spelman. Now I don't go to University of Tennessee or Tennessee State. 
and learn some Greek and think I know more than y'all. Mm -mm. You left the knowledge at your grandmama house. And you came over here looking for something. And guess what? You've been hoodwinked, bamboozled, run them up, let them straight. <laughs> but what we're building, that's revolutionary. The Revolutionary Act is creating a new system that sweeps away the anti-human ones, the anti-life ones, the anti-future ones. But banging on that old system is probably not the most effective. If that's all you're doing, it's probably not the most effective way because here's what those systems do. You bang on them, and if you get a critical mass enough people banging on them, guess what? They'll bring a few of y'all in to keep it intact. I don't know if you saw a couple of days ago. I'm sure you did. You may have even talked about it. Morgan State University is the first. I think they're like 140, if memory serves me correctly, around 140 schools around the country that Amazon is partnering with now to pay the tuition of workers who want to study there in this program that they have. Well, uh, Morgan State announced a couple of days ago that they are the first four-year HBCU to be welcomed into this Amazon program. Amazon will pay your tuition if you're in Maryland. I think there one. I think there, there are three other, three or four other schools in Maryland. But Morgan State's the first HBCU, first four year HBCU. And so it's like, wow, this is great. And I'm thinking to myself, mm hmm. You know why Amazon is is stepping that up, right? Yeah, because y'all unionizing. In other words, if if Amazon wants to stay dominant, and it has plans to being dominant from now on. And then, you know, going to Mars and leaving your black ass here. But anyway, if they want to stay dominant, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They can't, they got to open up and take some of that resistance. But they're not making concessions any more than, as I say, as we were talking about, Random House published Blood in My Eye. They're not doing that because they want it to. They're doing it because if they don't do it, they're going to break. But that starts with developing what you're going to do. When you start organizing labor, it's amazing how capital finds the way to concede. In fact, one of the things that uh, George Jackson writes about and talks about is how these police are used. And on Monday night, as we, and a shout out to Verso Press, who is republishing all of Walter Rodney's stuff, but the proceeds are going to the Walter Rodney Foundation, which is uh, headquartered in Atlanta. And the Rodney, uh, the Rodney Foundation, you can see more about it at WalterRodneyFoundation.com. But they are uh, an organization that was put together by the Rodney family to share the life and works of Dr. Walter Rodney. His papers are at, at the Atlanta University Center. They were donated to the Woodruff Library, to AUC. They have a Walter Rodney conference, regular Walter Rodney conference every year, um, the symposium rather. They have legacy projects. They publish a journal. But anyway, this just came out a couple of days ago, Decolonial Marxism. Uh, this is the latest iteration. Walter Rodney uh, Ngugi, actually, Ngugi Wapiango, who, a uh, good brother, I got a chance to meet him when we read his book, Something Torn and New for Freshman Seminar, the now defunct Freshman Seminar, Howard. Decolonial Marxism, Essays from the Pan-African Revolution. These are previously unpublished essays by Walter Rodney that just came out. But on Monday night, we will read the first half of and then the following Monday in office hours, we'll finish the second half of this little book, The Groundings with My Brothers, Walter Rodney. Um, in the first chapter, which is Statement of the Jamaica Situation, he talks about organized labor among the police. But this is what he says. He says uh, about the strike. He says, yet one of the most significant strikes in recent times, he's talking about in Jamaica, 
was that carried out by the Jamaica police force demanding higher wages? That strike was not so much a part of the movement of the black working class, but a part of the breakdown of the system of oppression. For the local political lackeys have shown their incompetence in every direction. Meaning what? When you see a police union get what they want, it's normally because the police are used as the buffer between the people trying to organize. Now at Amazon, they've overflowed that. And Amazon tried their best. They paid millions of dollars in Alabama and New York State. And they got to stop them. They got to stop them. Starbucks closing closing stores. <laughs> they got to stop. But guess what? You can't beat them. Oh, they still organizing. And it's picking up momentum. People are seeing victories. What are we going to do? Well, then let's step up this HBCU. Let's get this HBCU in here and tell workers they can spend their tuition at more. Well, guess what? That's reform. And it could lead to revolution. Why? As long as you've got these independent places continue to organize, you go to Morgan to study. And guess what? You ain't doing what I sent you there to do. Well, you know, you paid my tuition, but I actually, that's just, you know, you already, uh, you know, you already don't pay me enough. So that's my actually labor that you've been exploiting. And I'm going to take this and one day I'm going to leave you. Oh, this is an unintended consequence. Yeah, that's straight out of Paulo Freire, you know, pedagogy of the press. That's what they call the surplus value of knowledge the surplus value of knowledge. Um, oh, yes. Excellent. Thank you. Yes, because we actually, and, and, and shout out to our, our sister and friend and Jamaican, Sunyata Amin. We know that, uh, oh, today is actually, today is Independence Day, huh, Professor Hunter? Today is Jamaican Independence Day. I know you Jamaicans, probably somebody in the chat I already told. Yep, this day, 1962, uh, since you brought up Jamaica. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And in fact, yes, we're going to talk. In fact, let me let me let me make a note of that because we wanted uh, wanted to get Sunyata in here today, but I couldn't manage it. Today is this has been a, a hell of a week. And in fact, I want to kind of as we begin to wind to a close, talk about a little bit of what has been going on this week in the context of what we're talking about to kind of bring it all together. But maybe next week we can uh, do a crossover, a little bit of a crossover and bring Dr. Amin in because she's going to be talking about it tomorrow in maroon medicine chats we just i talked with her yesterday okay she good brought it up she's you know and, and it's not just independence day it's also uh i think the day that they i mean there's two things that happened today as it relates to jamaica and i forgot the second one mm. um mm. it had to do with uh, throwing off the monarchy uh you know the um overseeing of the monarchy also Ooh, the paul bogle i'm trying to let me see what they call that the Maroons, oh, the the uh, well, the Commonwealth. Well, they they were in the Commonwealth. They're gonna get out of that too, though. Now, yeah, yeah. Thanks to me or more Motley and them, they breaking up. They breaking all kind of rules. <laughs> the, the social structure is crumbling. But uh, yeah, you know, we we we. I think maybe we should set aside some time next week if we can to to kind of get into that. Um, but let's uh, let's spend a little time today. So so just as a moment here not to pivot but to kind of bring the momentum of the last uh hour plus into it you know we opened up here we are the first saturday in black august in in the dog days shout out to the classical africans and Sirius. so we we see the heat we're in the heat uh a heat that is now just un, unreasonable because of human effort and error and we know that Black August is named Black August because of so much that went on during this this month, um, marked initially with the assassination of George Jackson, um, 21st of August, 1971. His brother, Jonathan, who had been assassinated the previous year, 
uh, trying to break his brother out of jail. Um, and we know that George Jackson was one of three brothers, uh, Fleet of Drungo being the other and uh, uh, John Claudette being the other, called the so-called Soledad brothers. Um, and that sparked the, the Black Liberation Army, that sparked the Black prisoner, political prisoner movement, that sparked the, um, the struggles many of the struggles that took place in the 1970s, 80s, 90s to this day. There are many uh, black folk, women and men, indigenous people, Latin, Latin folk who are locked up because they engaged in political activity. Um, we know that Baba Matulu Shakur, who has, he has actually served beyond what the state had him in terms of terms of years. So they still won't let him go. Um, before we leave, we'll mention Alfred, uh, brother Alfred Wood, Woodfort, whose obituary I think was actually into actually I know it was because I looked at it. it was in today's New York Times. Um, Woodford was one of the Angola three Woodfox rather Albert Woodfox. He made transition at seventy five. This man spent forty two years in solitary confinement. If you've ever seen his book, and I have it over there somewhere, solitary. Uh, in fact, uh, Alex Traub writes Albert Woodfox who spent 42 years in solitary confinement, possibly more time than any other prisoner in all of American history. You had to put that possibly in. because Well, who was the other one? I don't know, but it must be somebody. You know, go on, white man. Yet emerged to win acclaim with a memoir that declared his spirit unbroken. I, I love how the social structure has to narrate things that give them a chance to still be the arbiter. Um, died on Thursday in New Orleans. He was 75. His lead lawyer, George Kendall, said the cause was COVID-19. And I knew George Kendall when I was a clerk at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. George Kendall fights hand, you know, fist, two-fisted, man, death penalty cat, man, there's nobody better. His lead lawyer, George Kendall, said the cause was COVID-19. Mr. Kendall added that Mr. Woodfox also had a number of pre-existing organ conditions. Mr. Woodfox was placed in solitary confinement in 1972 after being accused of murdering Brent Miller, a 23-year-old corrections officer. A tangled legal ordeal ensued including two convictions, both overturned, and three indictments stretching out over four decades. The case struck most commentators as problematic. No forensic evidence linked Mr. Woodfox to the crime. So the authorities' argument depended on witnesses who over time were discredited or proved unreliable. Lied on him. Man spent decades in jail, 42 years in solitary confinement. In a Russian court this week, Brittany Griner was convicted of possession of marijuana, these vape cartridges, and they gave her 10 years. It's almost 10 years. It's clearly, clearly criminal. Let's put that in context because, you know, she's over there. And as you talked about so powerfully, Prof, you know, when you are facing the beast, the cage. And in fact, I, I wish you would you know, come back for a second and, and share with us some of what you were thinking as you put that show together, that conversation where you encourage people who have done time. That's no, you know, joke. If you black in America, more likely than not, I ain't never uh, done no time, but I've been handcuffed and put in jail, you know, by those very same cops that uh, let them white boys run all through the Capitol. You know, you come there and stop me for no reason and be like, oh, wow, all this tag, uh, is expired yeah i gotta go get it renewed no problem we're gonna lock you up put you in the capitol police jail no problem i'm very happy to go with you why are you so cooperative no problem 
Then they realized I was a college professor. Oh, you messed up. No, let me sit in here. No, let I want to sit in here, officer, and read your name. Because, see, you're my lesson in the morning. It's so wonderful to be here with you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know. Yeah, because you, sir, are about to be famous. <laughs> but at any rate, my point is that, and it ain't the only time I've been in jail. But I'm just saying, <laughs> but not for not for having vape cartridges. Right. In fact, Monday night, we're going to talk, Walter Roddy talks about what they give you for marijuana in Jamaica during the Black Power. All this ties together. But come, come on back, Proud. Come yeah. on back. Because Jamaica is illegal. People serious. People serious. Think, I mean, it's, but it speaks to the police and the Black body. So I, I, I came in with the mindset that I wanted to have a different kind of conversation because everybody's, you know, outraged about the sentence. Right. I'm outraged about her being shackled in a cage. Um, for something that's clearly not violent. She's not violent. You know who she is. You know, she played basketball for your effing nation. Right. She brought you a lot of glory and a lot of, you know. I wanted people to sit in the empathy that we seem to lack, you know, as everybody's judging, why would you go to a country with, you know, and yeah, we can make all of the decisions, all of the uh, judgments about uh, bad decisions that people make. But raise your hand if you've never made a bad decision. Come raise on your now. hand if you've never made a mistake. Raise your hand if you've never done anything that you wish you hadn't done. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to spend time there, which is why I invited people who have been in a cell because, and I kept saying she was six, seven, she's six foot eight, a six foot eight person. Cause I, I, I actually wanted to sit in it. So I watched a bunch of YouTube videos of what Russian prisons look like and women's prisons. First of all, the beds are barely six feet. So, so half her legs are hanging over. There's, there's barracks of course, where they cram because it's overcrowded. No question. It's the most overcrowded prison system in all of Europe. And COVID and don't know your passport. So no <laughs> monkeypox no. don't know your passport. No, and that's the other thing, overridden with, with disease. No right? question. Um, mm. And so she's crammed in at six, eight black. I don't know that there are a lot of black people in Russia and she's definitely LGBTQIA, uh, which is so, um, so much a problem in Russia. You so I don't know what kind right. of I mean, they, they put your ass in jail for who you are. No question. No question about it. So, so and, that, and that's jail. Up there, you're talking about labor camps. Do you understand? Yeah. So I just wanted to spend time in what her, I mean, we've seen the video, the, you know, the images of her with her eyes looking like, you know, like she's going through something. No she question. was vaping, a, a, you know, according to her for anxiety, like that can't be, she's, you know, definitely. So I'm thinking about her mental health. I'm thinking, but more importantly, I'm thinking about her black body and, and how globally our black bodies have always kind of been used in this case going to be used as a political uh weapon or football you know her her fame has definitely that sentence was done on purpose so that then uh america would be inclined to come and give them the arms dealer that they need to win this war i mean there's so much going on but at the center is a black woman once again right. and i'm sitting there like we need to feel that all, you know, all of you sanctimonious so-called Christians who are like, you know, wagging your fingers at something that you would never do. Good for you. Good for you. But this is a much bigger conversation that has to be had, but it must start in empathy. So I wanted to try to do that. Brought in Howard Bryant to have that conversation. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I put a clip up three 30 minute clip of a two hour. We ended up talking like an hour and a half about it. So, um, how should we be looking at this historically, Dr. Carter? For sure. 
empathy and and never never from the u.s perspective at least exclusively not from the u.s perspective i mean it, it it's a no it's not no it's not because again what they say in the nation what malcolm say run them up let us stray bamboozle hoodwink we have to stop thinking of any of these things without doing exactly what you anchored it in this is a human being a human being doesn't have a flag a human being doesn't have a passport a human being breathes the same air we breathe the human you know with all of his mental health challenges which are probably more biological and biochemical than anything else uh the republican candidate the white nationalist party candidate for georgia with his discussion of uh bad air in china uh is not completely wrong in the sense that yeah the bad air in china herschel the bad air in the atmosphere is <laughs> to so understand wherever you are polluting is going to affect everywhere else so while you, you, you know, you, you didn't quite hook it together and maybe between your brain and your mouth, something got went left. But at the end of the day, we do all breathe the same air. You're right about that. bro. Now, you might want to get with some of the people who own you, who have owned you since you were probably in middle school to talk about why they pollute more than anybody who you think you're talking about and who actually owns them factories that you're talking about. But that's a story for another day. In Brittany Griner's case. She is no different as a human being than everybody locked up for weed everywhere else. And that's the other thing. <laughs> this is a human conversation. And with people who look like us taking the L. Right. Go ahead, brother. There was a there's a brother because we talked about it on the radio too. I didn't put it in the clip, but um, he's got life in prison for marijuana because of previous oh, situations. There are marijuana, which is why I've always been for its. You know, being and Joe Biden can do this with an executive order. It should be federally made, uh, not legal. Uh, it should be made legal federally. Right. It should be legal federally. It should be legal. Should have been from in its once you made alcohol legal, cannabis should have been legal. But it's all about power and it's all about policing black bodies. And because you use that drug, that plant to demonize black people. You know, it's almost ironic that this is the thing that got Brittany Griner nine and a half years, but there are people right. like working in jails right now, thousands and thousands of black people uh, for less cannabis, for, for, less. for cannabis. And it's, for less. and and that is legal and people are making billions of dollars, including crying ass John Boehner. is one Come of the things he did when he left Congress was to go uh, saddle up with a, with a weed company uh, mm -hmm. when he was in Congress doing the opposite that is not federally legal now it it is to me very interesting and uh, very interesting there's so many conversations to be had around it but i wanted to start it in humanity no so. we have to yeah and you did that i mean and by the way everybody here in the dmv y'all think y'all could just like smoke weed as you said prop federally no so you know it's a lot of so don't be going out on the national mall Bowie, <laughs> howard university of maryland American University, George Washington, all you students come back here thinking that weed is legal because you can go to the dispensary. I mean, I still can't get my mind around it, Prof, because I'm too old. I, we, 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 we had a meeting today. Uh, today, my God, no. Uh, Thursday, I guess it was, this uh, this committee, uh, my teaching assistant, and we sitting there, you know, uh, her committee, we sitting there chewing through things, and we get up, it's time to go. So we walk over on campus, and we walk past the dispensary, and I said, so you just go in there and buy marijuana? 
She's like, yeah. I said, you can just go in there right now and buy marijuana. She said, yeah, you know that. And I said, I know it in my head, <laughs> but I still don't trust it. You know what I'm saying? But to your point, these cats making a killing. A killing. You walk down, I was in, I was in front of Madison Square Garden, cats out there with the tray, with the with the with the fold-up tables and all. I'm like, what the hell? The people making money on this? Let me read to you from uh, just very quickly the Africa report. This is the most recent uh, issue of this magazine, April, May, June issue. Patrick Smith, uh, one of the editors of the Africa report, he says, in the mind's eye of a handful of men in the autumn of their lives and brandishing weapons of mass destruction, our world is reverting into a grand conflict of spears of influence. The signal is the biggest war in Europe for more than 70 years. The price is the destruction of thousands of lives and livelihoods in Europe and lethal mayhem wreaking tens of millions of lives, wrecking rather, tens of millions of lives far beyond its borders. It is a geopolitical reality for which few of the world's nearly 8 billion people would vote. Remember, 2 billion when Eric Mann and then white prisoners is talking, 8 billion now. Uh, finally, Smith says, yet it has become the all-consuming news on our phones newspapers and televisions, like the peoples of Korea, Vietnam, Congo, Angola, and Ethiopia before them, the brave fighters of Ukraine are trapped between the hammer and the anvil. Why do I read that? And what does it have to do with Brittany, uh, uh, BG, Brittany Griner, and, and, and Weed, and, and what we're talking about here, and the humanity of people who get caught up in this? These are geopolitics that have nothing to do with the lives of the people who suffer as a result. Brittany Griner in jail because the Soviet Russia and China and Iran and the United States and the EU are engaged in a grand strategy war. And so what we can't do now is start saying, see, they got over there. She black, she political prisoner and they want to do a prisoner swap. We shouldn't do that because we shouldn't negotiate with with terrorists or they, they got this arms dealer. Hold on. You know, your arms dealer. Yeah, because how you know? You repeat what you saw on TV, right? Okay. And, okay, so the Russians are invading Ukraine. Everybody agree that's bad, right? Who says it's bad first? The people who getting bombed, right? Everybody in Russia is against Ukraine. No. Them people are scared as hell. Yeah. And you in the United States saying, see, Putin, Putin, Putin. Okay, let's come over here. You got whole-ass terrorists out here. You got a sitting Supreme Court justice who wife planned a whole ass insurrection and he just go to work every day meanwhile in st louis last week the home of amari yeshitella and his wife were raided by the fbi and also the offices in miami of the african people's socialist organization and the uhuru uh, group that is with them because the fbi said that they are colluding with russia because they went to a conference that was in russia but that the things that they were talking about were human rights things and they protested. So now they're agents of Russia. Really? They're agents of Russia? Why ain't Mike Flynn as in handcuffs? Why ain't y'all rape? I, I see y'all went to Roger Stone's house, but Jenny Thomas is still living in Northern Virginia laughing at y'all. And everybody knows, and by everybody, I mean everybody paying attention, that, what was it, eight congressmen went to Russia on July 4th and they said he was over there to critique, but that's not why they were over there. But guess what? Ain't none of them been arrested. Ain't none of, none of them houses been raided. And there's no evidence that uh, Yeshitella, they ain't been charged with nothing. But you know what they did? They went in there and took their documents. You tried to destroy their movement. You act like y'all don't remember in Black August, the counterintelligence program. Black people still locked up. 
black people still locked up. You remember the Black Panther Party? You going to jail for now on? What? What damn? But because we get caught up in the cosplay of geopolitics, we think that the interests of the U.S. government are interests. They shouldn't do a prisoner swap. Why? Do you want her back? Yeah. Reason Brittany Griner is in the news is because black people scream bloody murder. Her teammates scream bloody murder. Push the formation she gets a check from that's too short, which is why she over there in the first place to scream bloody murder. And now it's all over everywhere because she's got some celebrity cachet. Don't act like y'all was caping for Britney Griner before she got arrested. How many, you know, come on now. But hmm. now it's like she a political prisoner. She is a political prisoner, but it ain't because of her political consciousness. See, some of us remember when y'all was trying to play Britney Griner like she was androgynous and when she came out of high school in the first place to play. If you follow the women's game, you know Britney Griner is a well-known commodity, right? I mean, if you follow the women's game, you know that they got beef now, the WNBA, the, 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 the sister they just let go with the sparks when Liz Cambridge or whatever from Australia, I think her daddy Nigerian, you know, you got uh, uh, um, um, yeah. But she oh, said, oh. yeah, but she she's complicated. This is what I'm saying, because remember the two sisters, uh, Ogun, uh, Ogunike, uh, was a Chinese, and her sister, who want to play for the Nigeria team, and Liz Cambridge, I think her daddy Nigerian said, but you done said some crazy shit about Nigeria out your mouth, you know what I'm saying? So in other words, if you follow the women's game, you understand that that social structure, governance structure thing is playing around. So now we know Brittany Griner because the Russians are using her as a pawn in a larger game. But if you look at the human thing first, then we need to cape for Brittany Griner. And everybody in that position is Brittany Griner. Because guess what? It's one of her in Russia and more than you can count being locked up in the United States of America. So when she comes back, and she will be coming back shortly, hope she stays safe. It's going to be hard as hell, as you say, Prof. But when she comes back, because they're going to do the prisoner swap. And some of you going to be crying. You shouldn't have everybody calm down. Because guess what? That other dude they want in the swap, that's the ones the Russians said is a spy. Now, of course, Russia called everybody a spy, but you know what? As John Henry Clark saying, some stories, it ain't no good guys. And two things can be true at the same time. You really think the United States would tell us if there was a spy? Would you buy the so where the Russians told them, say, hey, man, y'all say less about Brittany Griner. We trying to negotiate. They somewhere right now getting the swap together. And Russia is embarrassed because all of the black countries have come out against Russia over Brittany Griner. The black people in the United States, all the black countries in the Caribbean, all the uh, black countries in Africa. Wait. Wait. Wait, none of the African countries came out against Russia? No. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, what about them Latin America? No. Well, who's against Russia? The EU. You see, they just let Sweden and Norway in this week. And then... The Swedes agreed to up the blockade against Russian stuff. Two carve-outs, though, agricultural products and, and oil. <laughs> what y'all doing? Because most of the world, that world that Smith and the Africa Report saying is suffering, they sitting this one out in terms of the governments. So this cosplay about Russia versus the United States, you see, that's when you just looking at social structure media in bites on your way to re-listen to Renaissance from Beyonce again. I'm not saying you shouldn't listen. Listen a million times. Do what you want. But at the same time, you're not paying attention. You're going to jump on somebody's side. Why are you jumping on somebody's side? And in the meantime, the FBI is still attacking you here. So you saw, for example, Nancy Pelosi. 
Pelosi was in where was she? Taiwan. Taiwan. She was in Taiwan. I don't know. Did y'all talk about that, bro? I didn't. I'm, I'm nervous about it. Like, so I'm glad you brought it up because China's like, um, yeah, what you not gonna do? <laughs> and firing off missiles, I was like, could this be the start? We over here looking over here, and they, you know, the start of what World War Three? Yeah, I'm like, why? What, what you know are we what's doing? Going? You know what's so funny? The World Trade Organization has the first continental African and the first woman, no, no, the first African, yeah, I think and the first one, to lead the World Trade Organization, uh, Ngozi Ojonkwa Iweala. This is the covered after report. I hope the tensions won't lead to World War Three. This is the point she making. <laughs> you just made the point she made because She's in the World Trade Organization. She's leading the World Trade Organization, which, of course, got its own criminal enterprise facade. Well, you see her, it ain't because they love Africa so much. It's because they understand that as these formations deteriorate from this World War II consensus, again, this Russia-Ukraine conflict, the biggest war in Europe since World War II, they have to now come up with a different type of model if they want to keep the hierarchy. So you got to let some of these kind of Africans in. And as Walter Rodney talks about, as we'll talk about on Monday night, the type of African you let in is somebody who you're trying to cultivate to be part of your criminal enterprise by letting them in. This is why Gerald Horn over the years always de describes what happened in the civil rights movement in the United States. This is why you can't cut off the United States from the world. He said, during the 40s, 50s, and 60s, after the World War II, as the world is having to choose up sides with these newly emergent countries, including these non-white countries, the United States, in order to stay in its position that it is really cemented after 1945 as a result of nuclear weapons and everything else, they have to make some concessions because the world is mostly non-white. And in doing that, what Gerald says is, he says they call a truce. He said, okay, for the black folk in this country who are part of this emerging upper class, this petty bourgeois class, you know, you can eat a hamburger where you want. You can ride anywhere you want on the bus. We make sure you have some voting rights to cement your status so you can elect some people as long as y'all don't try to be having no revolution in here. Meanwhile, we're going to lock up George Jackson and uh, Angela Davis and the Black Panthers and anybody else. Meanwhile, as he talks about in this book, The Grinders with My Brothers, we're going to lock up any revolutionaries in Jamaica or anywhere else that's going on all over. And as long as you distance yourself from them revolutionaries, and as long as you put domestic, our domestic policy first, it's no problem. The price of your rights in the United States, enhanced access to these rights that you claim were always there for you to have, the price is to delink yourself from these global struggles. You must delink yourself from these global struggles. And that's when you see people like uh, Walter White and them, NBCP and them. Uh, um, I mean, you know, they, it's complicated, as Carol Anderson writes in her book, Bourgeois Radicals. I think she's a, she's a little bit more. Uh, open to the prospect of them trying to negotiate more than, say, for example, Gerald Horn, who's just like, nah, them Negroes, is, they went over there. It was complicated, yeah, but they went over there. You see them now come out heavy anti-communist. Now, this raid that we saw in St. Louis and in Florida against uh, Yeshitela and them, who have been around forever, if you know anything about Black Nationalist Pan-African community, you know the African People's uh, Socialist Organization. This raid Looks like, and they saying because y'all was with the Russians, that's like the damn House Un-American Activity Committee. You back in the 50s and 60s when they took Paul and S.E. Robeson's passports and W.B. Du Bois and Shirley Graham Du Bois. Now he's going to kick in my door waving the 4-4, claiming that I'm a communist. 
and you have no evidence, even if I was, it ain't against the law. That's Paul Robeson's point. But in the meanwhile, you got white nationalists that attack the whole damn government and they going to work every day. Now, I know you locking up the, 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 the smaller ones, but you ain't going to lock up Donald Trump. And even if you do lock him up, you do know that you can run for president and from jail. Eugene Debs did it. <laughs> they locked him up for being a socialist. But anyway, neither here nor there. My point is that while all this is going on in the social structure, if we don't orient ourselves as human beings to look beyond these flags and state boundaries and passports, we will miss the fact that this is a system that is deteriorating and fighting to maintain control from a European world system that emerged after 1945 that fortified itself led by the United States before 1945 was led by old Europe. It's not a Rumsfeld used to call it as a result of the colonization wars of the last 500 years, particularly the 19th century when they consolidated power in the early 20th century. What you see is that we are now faced with that, that, that whole thing is teetering. And so these countries who have some power, China, Russia, Iran, this is very dangerous. Now, these countries are like, we don't like the old hierarchy. So the question is, if you don't like the old hierarchy, what are you going to replace it with? Now, they talk that rah-rah stuff in China. Xi Jinping, who's now going to stand again for re-election, that's kind of, they're going to talk that rah-rah of human beings. We want the world to develop. We're going to give you some roads, and we're going to do you no interest loans. We just want access. Nah, we don't, we don't trust your motives. Are you the new imperialist? That's what the Africans are saying now. Well, at least the Africans on the street, them Negroes in the suites getting free trips to Beijing and people coming in, they, they may not be as quick to rah-rah, although they say some of the right things. But at the same time, we know that they ain't the United States. And the United States is like, hmm, we have to submit the United States as a power. Now, let me tie this together. This little thing I'm talking about when it comes with Taiwan. If you're reading the social structure press in the United States, it looks like you know, Biden administration is nervous because Pelosi's going to Taiwan. Everybody pause for just a second. You think them people ain't talking all the time? It's cosplay. Pay attention. We got to pay attention. Nancy Pelosi goes to Taiwan. She gives a speech to their leaders. She talks about we're against autocracy. We're against dictatorship. Who is her target and Joe Biden target and the United States government target and the business people in the United States target, China. Remember, that, and this is where Baba Oz was bringing this up on social media the other day, Daniel Ortega, who used to be the, uh, the leader of Nicaragua said this at, at a forum. He said, you know, the United States was at the UN. They endorsed the one China policy. One China policy, China say Taiwan are, is part of us. Y'all like, like, we don't remember colonialism. I don't know what y'all trying to do, but China's part of us. I mean, Taiwan's part of us. And everybody UN said, okay. Ortega was like, they said okay from the United States, but they didn't mean it. Why? He said, China is out here expanding, going in places, trading with people, one belt, one road initiative, all this kind of thing. Now, their motives may or may not be pure. Of course, they're not pure. No, no country's motives are completely pure, of course, because we're talking about an international bourgeoisie story from the other day. But at the same time, they ain't harm nobody like you. And here's a cat from Central America saying, See, we know who the United States is down here. This is what y'all do. Y'all coined the term banana republic. We talked about that last summer. So we know who y'all are. So y'all stand up here saying China, 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 Russia, Russia, Russia. We sitting back like, maybe. But of the groups of China, Russia, and the U.S., guess who the one is we know? Not from what you say, rhetorical ethic, but what you do. We know you. 
And as Muhammad Ali told him, when he said he ain't going to Vietnam, you my opposer. <laughs> you know, I know you. I know you. So at any rate, Pelosi goes to Taiwan. She meets with the political leaders. She gives the rhetorical ethic. I heard Gerald Horn uh, yesterday actually talking to uh, our, our friend and dear sister um, Esther Iverum on WPFW here at Pacifica Network. Does an incredible show on Friday mornings called On the Ground. Crack journalists, activists, and, and she has Gerald on most Fridays. They talk. Gerald in about 10 minutes broke everything down. He said, you know, to understand why Pelosi was in Taiwan, there are several factors. Number one, there is a large percentage of uh, Asians, particularly Chinese, in her district in San Francisco. Her district covers most of San Francisco. Many of them have the attitude toward China that the Cubans who came to Florida had toward Cuba. In other words, Hong Kong, that's their thing. You know what I'm saying? No, China, no, China, no, China, no. So she's just showing up her thing. But also, guess who else was there? Lord have mercy. What was the brother? I remember one time, uh, the second time Ajwa brought me up there, y'all were having a conversation with Gregory Meeks. Mm -hmm. Did you see Meeks? Yeah. Meeks was on the plane. He the chair of the Foreign Service Committee. And Gerald was cracking me up. He said, it was like Gregory Meeks was performing a Marcel Marceau. You know, he's, they got off the plane. Nancy Pelosi put her hand out. He put his hand out. Nancy Pelosi backed up when somebody said something. He backed up behind her. He said, I don't know whether he mistook himself for security, but I'm looking at Gregory Meeks like, well, bro, I ain't mad at you because I know how politicians are. Understand that Meeks was the sponsor of the countering malign Russian influences activities on Africa bill this spring in April. That bill passed the House 415 to 9. So, so nine people voted against it. Okay, good. So that must mean it was Corey Bush and Ilhan Omar. It was the squad. No. You know who the nine were? The white nationalists. Crazy ass Lauren Bobbert, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, that boy out Gomert. What's a fool out of uh, Arizona whose own family said don't vote for him? They the ones voted against it. Well, everybody else voted for it. What was doing the bill? The bill is saying these African countries should, should safeguard against undue influence from Russia. Straight house on American activity, straight anti-communist. Come on, Meeks, what you doing, bruh? Meeks is the chair of House Foreign Policy, meaning what? I'm talking about the United States. Y'all looking at me because I'm black and I'm from Queens. Now, nah, I'm representing the state. And the state has interests that have been bought and paid for, including the people who give it in my campaign. And so let me be very clear. On some things, we depart company. That's why Bakari Sellers had his ass meddling in elections around the country, right? Whether it be Nina uh, uh, Chantel Brown versus Nina Turner in Ohio, whether it be trying to get rid of Rashid to, uh, Rashida Tlaib in uh, Michigan, whether it be trying to get rid of Cori Bush in St. Louis. A lot of the money came in there, came through these pro- APAC, not pro-Israel. Pro-Israel could be a little different because you had some pro-Israel groups that said, no, nah, y'all Zionists and we don't like what you're doing. And there was Now that can be a political battle on one side, but when it comes to U.S. foreign policy, well, guess what? Even the squad lined up and voted for this clearly red-baiting language, but guess what? The African countries have not picked a side. Greg Meekson has been told, you know, you got to make them pick a side. The African countries like, what did Russia and China do to us? Yeah, they may screw us eventually. I'm not sure. But I know one thing. I know what you didn't do. I know what you didn't do. And I know what you did. So the African countries can't be budged. So what Jerry was talking about was Nancy Pelosi is in Taiwan. And here we bring it together. 
it ain't just her congressional district sure that's a factor but she's locked in she'll be there and in that you know the year after she makes transition she'll be voted from the cemetery back into her her position and maybe people might not be able to tell the difference but what you know what they worried about here's who else she met with professor hunter she met with mark louis l-u-i mark louis is the head of the taiwan semiconductor manufacturing corp that's the chips mm. that's the computer chips that's letting us have this conversation right now that's on the cell phones that's the laptops that's that's the desk units right Ta- that corporation makes 53 percent of the world's computer chips and other corporations in taiwan headquartered in taiwan make about 10 percent. so over six out of every 10 chip come out of taiwan oh it's the world's largest chip manufacturer oh Nancy Pelosi's in Taiwan and China. Ho! Oh, everybody calm down. If you weren't paying attention, you saw that the United States uh, Congress passed a $53 billion CHIPS Act last week. CHIPS and Science Act. Bernie Sanders from the, from the well of the United States Senate called it corporate welfare. Guess what? It is corporate welfare. Why? In that fit to get some of that money, this is for American corporations to manufacture chips. All that 5G stuff, Taiwan. So your tax dollars, 53 billion of it, are going to American corporations to try to make up this chip gap in case China come your ass back over here to Taiwan. <laughs> and now your computers don't work. Nancy Pelosi is in there to shore that up. And guess what? They are entertain, they want Taiwan. Is it Taiwan? No, they want South Korea, Samsung and South Korea, to build a factory here in the United States. In fact, they're closing on it now. They're coming close to having it to fruition, right? But here's the thing. To get one of those $53 billion, your company has to promise that you will not sell any of your stuff to China. That's what they're lining up for. The cosplay is watching CNN or MSNBC. The reality is paying a little bit closer attention. So China tells Pelosi and the United States, what the hell y'all doing? So guess what China did? This, this is what Gerald's talking about, the unintended consequences. He said, you know what they're getting ready to do? They're going to drive China and Russia closer together. Mm-hmm. And they might even add Iran to that mix. And Iran is getting closer to nuclear weapons. Gerald made a point. He said, you know, the United States military has conducted 19 war game exercises in recent years, gaming out what would happen in a war with China. The United States lost every one of them. See, we got to stop acting like this stuff. When's the last war America has won? That's a good, now that, that, there's the question, right? There's the question. The Chinese reaction, you know what the Chinese started doing? They started curtailing, they've already announced, they're going to curtail agricultural purchases from Mm -hmm. the United States. Guess who that's going to hurt? Them same hillbillies that's trying to steal elections, that's trying to vote for people who are going to steal elections now. Except they're going to blame it on Biden. And they say, if Donald Trump comes back, no, this is one where DNR don't matter. They all in lockstep on this. You saw the squad voted for that damn beat up Africa with the anti-communist tag. This is the point. This is about business. It's been driven by business. It's the, it's the, it, you know, the same business interest that got that toony loon to say, I ain't going to vote for this money coming out for infrastructure and all the rest of this until y'all make sure y'all take out this little tax loophole for these billionaires who own me. You know, you got the cosplay coal miner on board because the business interest told him it's okay. But the Toonie Loon had to make sure they just switched it out. It's all cosplay. But the point is this. When you see China's reaction was, oh, we ain't going to buy as much stuff agricultural from you. 
that's going to hurt American businesses. Also, the People's Bank of China has reduced its treasury bill purchases. First time in in a decade is going under a trillion dollars. Well, what, what are T-bills? That's how the government pays for all kinds of stuff. So now they going to war with the United States on a whole nother level while we look at Nancy Pelosi on TV. And then, of course, as you say, those military exercises surrounding Taiwan. What does that mean? Well, you know, Taiwan exports computer chips. What happens when you got battleships and planes all around circle your little place? Same thing that happens when you can't get your grain out. Exactly. And that's where we're in, Prof. Because here's the question. We know greater humanity. We know common struggle. But this is Africana. How do we free us? Who are we to each other? Remember last year, I think about my man, uh, Sam Livingston down at Morehouse, who has been one of the main people with Maurice Carney and others, friends of the Congo, uh, Dr. Fia Zakia, my dear friend, former president of the African Heritage Studies Association now in Mississippi. Um, they had a hashtag going around talking about hashtag no Congo, no phone. Because we know that it isn't just coal tan that comes out of Congo, it's cobalt. It is uh, it's copper, it's gold, it's diamonds. The supply chains already overstressed and, and breaking down. How do we free us? What's our stake in it? Them child soldiers, we talk child soldiers, those child laborers and that micro laboring thing they're doing in DRC right now. And they're getting ready to have, I think, Shishi Ketty is running for uh, election in, in DRC shortly. So all the business people have already gained out where to get stuff if something collapses. So Taiwan is of strategic importance to China and the United States. But of those two, China, the only one can say they part of our country. United States is like, kiki, kiki, yeah, they are. But until it gets too heavy, or what are we going to do? So now they passed $53 billion of your money to shore up the companies here, that same companies that turn around thanks to Johnny Roberts and fund these white nationalists to come in and keep them in power to give them more tax breaks and things like that. In Africa, they haven't picked a side unless they're pressured to do one. And the United States ain't got no imprint over there except AFRICOM. They got it in military bases. But guess what? China been over there doing work. Russia hasn't done as much work, but the United States ain't done no work of any lasting significance to be able to have a footprint there. And Greg Meeks can introduce and pass through the house as much legislation as he wants, saber rattling. Them countries is like, yeah. Unfortunately, like Patrice Lumumba said to Ralph Bunch, when he came over there trying to negotiate peace, he was like, I don't want to talk to you. Send your master. The Negro ain't got no power. Sorry, Greg. I mean, plus them dances, man. I've seen that footage, man. I'm like, bro, did you really? I mean, anyway, you know, I I ain't mad at you, though, because I know, you know, what the story is. But when we think about how we sitting here on a Saturday or whenever you're watching this should be thinking about this, we have to remember that it begins with knowing what we're looking at. It takes it all the way back down to the Ntitsi, to that Akan, that Adinkra symbol that you showed us, Professor Hunter. We have to be able to take in the information and then talk with each other and decide. And that each other includes Houston and DC and Newark. It includes New York and that includes Kingston, Jamaica. It includes Opobo Town, Nigeria. <laughs> in other words, when we talk with each other, we can figure it out. And there it is right there. But the first thing is we have to listen. So I, 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 I'll um, look in here now. I'll stop with, with just a, a couple of other things. And then I promise you won't be long. Because we know we had those transitions. I talked about Albert Fox. We know that, you know, Nichelle Nichols, our sister, 
uh, made transition, Lieutenant Uhura, who made up that character. She was on the Gene Roddenberry show before that. And, uh, you know, she, um, you know, came up in Chicago. Actually, Lorraine Hansberry used to walk her to school sometime because Lorraine Hansberry daddy was the one who told her mother and father to buy a house in this white neighborhood. And we talked about Hansberry, um, the Hansberry family, uh, Leo being the, uh, the uncle, but her was her father, Carl, who was friends with, with, um, with her family, with Michelle Nichols family, uh, Duke Ellington. She sang with Ellington, uh, you know, among others during that period. And she studied dance as a dancer, um, got into theater, was actually walked and delivered over to, um, what's the, uh, What's their brother's name? Made transition recently. Douglas Turner Ward, the American Negro Ensemble, theater ensemble, got to New York, and the rest is history. You know, film, stage career first, film, this kind of thing. Made up the category, the the the, the character, because Gene Roddenberry was trying to cast this uh, this I hate to say multicultural cast of sort. George Takai, who's been talking, you know, recently, and Leonard, she met Leonard Nimoy. He was driving a cab, an unemployed actor. Michelle Nichols and she said when he, when he they knew each other they were at lunch one day he said I'm putting this thing together Star Trek you know and I want this woman character and she said okay Uhura because remember Uhuru freedom and Kiswahili that was a thing in the 60s black power movement black internationalism she made up that character Nyota Uhuru and the rest of course is history Mae Jemison everybody from Mae Jemison to those early black astronauts Ronald McNair and uh, Gian Bluford, you know, she worked with NASA to recruit more non-whites and women into the program. Um, when Mae Jemison opened her hailing frequencies, her first trip she took, she was in space for over a week. She would say opening opening hailing frequencies. That was the gesture to the woman she called before she went up, which was, of course, Nichelle Nichols and violated NASA policy. But that's the social structure, governance. Who are, Who am I to this sister right here who inspired me as a child? You can't make that up. You know what I'm saying? And then Bill Russell, we might need to spend some time next week on Bill Russell. You know, I um, um, Beyond Uhura is Nichelle Nichols' memoir over there. This is uh, Bill Russell's second win. If you get a chance, get your hands on this, the memoirs of an opinionated man. Bill Russell, I won't even start. I'll just tell you two quick stories. And of course, our brother, um, um, I'm blanking now. Anyway, I'll, I'll come back to you in a minute. The first one, of course, his brother, Charlie, was a playwright. He wrote Five on the Black Hand Side, among others, um, things. Uh, brother Kevin Blackstone, University of Maryland, the sports columnist, was, tell, was talking about that the other night, uh, our brother. And, um, you know, Russell, of course, out of Louisiana, um, that the stories in his family are just incredible. And we, we could spend a whole time, we may need to do a, you should know him, Bill Russell. Although it's lots of- um, Isabella Wilkerson, um, Warmth of Other Sons, chronicles his, his family's migration story. Yes. I remember that being very poignant in that book. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Very powerful. I mean, his family, the same type of Negroes that Charlie Cobb writing about in that nonviolent stuff will get you killed. Won't take no stuff. His granddaddy, especially, never worked for anybody else day in his life. Farmer. So you think about Vernon Dahmer and Amzi Moore and the people that Bob Moses is talking about in Mississippi. You know, it's that kind of, you know. Yeah, the story we get is everybody's, you know, marching peacefully and you get hit with a wire hose or bit by a dog. The story we don't get is that cracker knows. As Bill Russell say, we went to the, to the ice house. The white man saw us sitting out there in the car, didn't do nothing. Another white man pulled up. Man went out, gave him ice. 
my daddy, uh, you know, got out the car and he said, I think that white man may still be running. He chased that white man away from his own ice house. <laughs> he said, because, because he started the car up like he's going to leave. Mr. Russell did. Uh, they called him Mr. Charlie by his first name. It's Bill Russell, daddy, Bill and Charlie Russell, daddy say I was driving and he was getting, he was getting ready to drive away. And the white man came out and said, boy, don't you ever do that? Meaning what? I'll serve you when I get ready. You better not leave. He said, my daddy got out the car and chased that white man down the road. <laughs> he said, you damn then got, came back, got in the car. We drove away. I ain't buying no ice from here. But the whole point was what you're not going to do is disrespect me in front of my children. And what Bill Russell said is the Bill Russell that won all them world titles, won the high school titles, won the college titles at University of San Francisco, won 11 rings. When, with Bill Russell said, what my daddy was teaching me right there, me and my brother, he's teaching us how to be a man. That's what Charlie Cobb is writing on every page of that nonviolence stuff will get you killed. Dr. King, I respect you. I think what you're doing is there, but that nonviolence should get you killed. <laughs> in other words, at some point, you got to show somebody something. A second wind is full of those stories. And, um, oh, man. Um, oh, it'll come to me and say, anyway. But we'll pause for there for now because on Monday night, we're going to do the groundings with my brothers, the first chapter, which is about five pages, five brilliant pages, statement of the Jamaica situation. We're going to see how Juneteenth ties to what was going on in Jamaica. We're going to see how jobs tie the Brittany Griner. Let me just read you this line on uh, in this. And if you get the Versal Press edition, you get all the other stuff, the forwards, the afterwards, this kind of thing. It's a short book. Even with all of that, it's not even, uh, what is it, 115 pages with footnotes. And that's most of that is other stuff. It's very short. This is a five-page chapter one. This is what he said, just as a teaser for those of you not yet in this conversation. Monday night, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard. We're going to be in Eastern Daylight. We're going to be in office hours on this. He says, the administration of the law has become more vicious and partisan. He's talking about Jamaica now. In early days of black power, uh, early days of independence. And, you know, uh, Sunyata is going to pick up this. Dr. Amin is going to pick up the Jamaican independence conversation tomorrow in Maroon's Medicine Chest. says the administration of the law has become more vicious, more vicious and partisan after the British leave. This black on black crime he's writing about now. He says the number of charges imposed on black people for the possession of ganja, marijuana, are astronomical. And the government has decreed that the minimum sentence on conviction, the minimum sentence on conviction must be 18 a charge of, quote, suspicion, end quote, has now been entered into the law books. And to be black and poor, Brittany Griner is a lot poorer than her male counterparts in the NBA. But she got a lot more money than most of them cats that get pinched in the United States. And Jamaica, he continues and says, a charge of suspicion has now been entered into the law books. And to be black and poor is to invite this charge in much the same way as the vagrancy laws operated in the period immediately after emancipation. The quality of justice dispensed by the legal system still depends on skin color. And since independence, the black police force of Jamaica have demonstrated that they can be as savage in their approach to black brothers as the white police of New York, for ultimately they serve the same masters. Mm. On Monday night, we're going to start with Walter Rodney walking us through the Jamaica situation and how it connects to black people everywhere in the world. And in the second chapter, he's going to talk about black power. 
So this is this is a Guyanese cat writing about Jamaica, but writing about our connections, who we are to each other. And that's why we're going to spend two weeks on the grounding tool, my brothers, because this ain't university talk. This is community talk. This is revolution in that sense. So I'll start with that. Speaking of revolution. Oh, um, yeah, Dr. Carr. Thank you. First, thank you for everything. I wanted to just end with uh, Mrs. Georgia Jackson. And she, can we say that again, another African name? Why? Clearly, her daddy, George, her, Georgia, her son, George. None of those are continental African names in terms of the language, but in terms of the intent, that's a beautiful thing. <laughs> yes. This is George Jackson's mom, huh? Yeah, we're going to end with this because it's Black August. And um, thank you for, uh, and you read some of what she said, and we've done this before, episodes 76 and 74. Yes, so y'all can go back to those um, episodes in Class with Carr to really get a deep dive into George Jackson and his life and his mother. We we covered it quite extensively, and I just want to thank you for uh, your obedience to the mission. Uh, we are here, yes, the platform's created, but it, it was born out of conversations that you sparked that then allowed me to put dots together and talk with other people and pull a team together. And it's, none of this happens alone in a vacuum. There's not one person that could make this happen. And we need everybody, uh, all hands on deck to make it what it's going to be. Y'all's vision, that's important. So uh, have a vision. How about that? Have a vision, have ready hands so that we can uh, make more things happen. And I just want to say thank you for being in community. I'll see y'all tomorrow with Dr. Amen. And then, of course, office hours where after eight o'clock I turn into a gremlin. So I'll be in the chat. Cause <laughs> okay. Feed so you hip hop and you start trembling. That's what uh, uh, Rakim say. <laughs> you ain't no gremlin Monday night. I'm gonna say less. I'm gonna say less. I'm gonna say, say less. less. Uh, all right. So this this is the this this is the voice. The next thing you'll hear is the voice of of George Jackson's mom talking about her experience and love. All you Nubians have a wonderful weekend. Love you. Love you. It was uh, Saturday afternoon about five minutes after five, and at first I didn't think it was George because it said George Johnson. So I went on with my sewing. And then about three or four minutes later, they said it was George Jackson, one of the so-called Soledad brothers. And nobody ever bothered to call me and tell me that he was dead. And it's, um, well, for the past 10 or 11 years, I've expected to hear that he was dead anyway. So although the shock was there from the radio, I still expected to hear it someday, but not from the radio. Your son died is fairly well known. Do you believe that? Do you disbelieve that? And do you have any other possibilities? What do you think? Really no, I don't believe that because I don't think my son was mad and I don't think he was an idiot. And I don't think that he would do the things that they said he did. You know, these people have for years gotten away with saying anything that they want to say because they have absolute power over those men. Those men can't even sneeze unless they want them to. They can say anything that they want to say, and we have to take it. You know that. Did they let any of you go in there and find out and talk to the people what happened? You only took their word for what happened, and that's the way it's always been. What do you think of? I think they expected me to go and sit in the corner and cry and not really look at George, but I did. I looked at him. 
I saw everything that happened to him. He was shot more than once. In fact, his body was mutilated. George was a fine looking man, but you, you wouldn't have been able to recognize him after they got through with him. It seemed as if they just did things to him for a vengeance, you know. And then when I talked on the phone to him about it at San Quentin, they said everybody was glad he was dead. And you could tell that they were glad for what they did to his body. You are free to change whatever you hear into the lies that you see. We have no misconception about how black people are treated in the penal institutions of this country. There's a lady that sits beside me who has firsthand knowledge of the way black people are treated in the penal institutions of this country.